Hello and welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast hosted by Matthew Robinson and his gaming group. Joining me today from said gaming group, the one, the only, Dimitri Portnoy. Matt, thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I did your previous podcast with you a couple of years ago, and it was a singularly amazing experience. What is that accent I'm hearing? Is that a Boston accent? Where, where are you from, Dimitri? A little bit further east. <laughs> uh, I'm a Russian speaker originally from Kiev. Amazing. Well, th- I, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to have your sultry, wonderful Russian voice with us today. Dimitri. Sultry. It is sultry. Yeah. Dimitri, why do we call you the non-gamer? Uh, I don't care about games. I like games. <laughs> and yet but here we I are. Don't, absolutely. I, I play games so I could talk to my friends about movies, books, and what's happening in our lives. And this is the medium of expression. So in essence, your time is being hijacked by people who really want to play games. And this is the only way that you can socialize with them as often as we do. Uh, and uh, I go voluntarily. So you, Tom and Trey and Paul were, were your friends before I met you. That's, uh, that's how I met you, through, uh, through I Tom. Ac- I actually met Paul through Tom. Paul, Paul is Paul uh, Tom. Right. Tom's brother-in-law. Right. Uh, Trey and Tom and I met in film school uh, a moment ago. Right. Amazing. And... Uh, did you, what, I've always, I don't think I've ever really known this origin. At what point did you start playing games with Tom? At what point did you realize like, well, if I want to hang out with my friends, I guess I'm going to Friday night game night. Well, Tom is actually very inclusive as a friend. Uh, he's the one who invites me everywhere. And um, I love that. I wouldn't have hung out with him nearly as often or gotten to know him as well if he hadn't. Uh, and uh, we would go to Vegas sometimes. Uh, we played poker and we had a writer's group together. And all that kind of coalesced and transformed into a weekly uh, game group. Right. And you've been going to that game group for over 10 years, right? I mean, it's been a, it's been a minute. Uh, sure. Uh, I think it started in 2008. Wow. Wow. That's a long time. Well, I'm glad that you stuck around in Tom's and then transitioned to mine. You now, well, what's funny to me that we call you the non-gamer because I'm pretty sure you game more than I'd say 95% of people who call themselves hardcore board gamers. I mean, you go, you go to Two serious board game nights a week. I do, and it actually Two out of seven days, you are playing the newest and most complicated of board games, and yet we we call you the non-gamer. And I remain the non-gamer, actually. I would much rather take a walk or see a movie or have a nice dinner. Uh, Paul started uh, a bro dinner night Mm -hmm. that lasted for a year or so before it petered out. Because it was expensive. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And one of the things that uh, you and Tom do for us as a service is buy these unbelievably sometimes expensive Mm. board games. You've even flown to Essen. Yeah. flown even worse to Indianapolis in August, which which is insane. (laughs) Like mad dogs and Englishmen don't go to Indianapolis in August. To be fair, I think we were outside for about 17 seconds over four days, but but sure. Uh, Sure, sure. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I believe you. (laughs) 
you know. Uh, and, and you bring back these board games that that uh, keep me smart, keep my mind agile, and uh, make things easy for me. Like uh, I, I went to law school fairly late in life, and I was able to uh, get the exact same score on the LSAT that I got uh, after senior year of college. Uh, this is turn. This is round one. Turn six. Should have said that earlier. Saying it now. This is the second to last turn of the of our first round of our uh, initial round of this podcast. Um, we have you and then Paul left. I can't wait till Paul. Uh, I think how do, you've been listening, right? Are you? Yes. You're a non gamer. Are you enjoying listening to this podcast? I am. I I like listening to people discussing something they're interested in, even when I have no interest in it. Right. So it, you you respond to the passion that most of us have for it. Yes, and I like details, and I also think that details reveal human qualities uh, and emotions. That uh, if people are on guard or talking about themselves directly would edit out. Right. So as somebody who uh, never looks at new games, doesn't study games, doesn't when, once you leave the game night, you are not thinking about board games anymore. Never. Right. Never. And in fact, it's interesting that to me that you do. I think about movies. I think about books. Uh, I've recently started thinking about television because it's so good. And you are, you are about, a screenwriter, much I'm, like myself and, and Tom and Paul. I think seven Jake. out of eight of us, yes, yeah. are screenwriters, <laughs> which is a, a not-so-hidden secret because uh, uh, screenwriters are lonely. We work by ourselves <laughs> Very true, uh, unless we're lucky enough to work in a writer's room. Uh, and this is a way for us to get together and share ourselves yeah. uh, without being competitive in something else. Yeah, because otherwise we would, we would kill each other. I think so. And, and most of us uh, who are writers or, have, or, or, or anybody who works alone and from home uh, needs a, a weekly social activity. I mean, you know, as social as time with your family is or your children or your spouse or your, your parents, whoever you are with, uh, you, need, you need some other people to interact with or else uh, you get a little crazy, go a little cabin, cabin crazy. I'm um, cabin uh, crazy. It's not cabin crazy. Uh, cabin fever. <laughs> cabin fever. Cabin yes. crazy yes. is a, a different thing. Yes. I, I, I'm familiar with two versions of friendship. Uh, one, uh, the American one, is where uh, a bunch of people are interested in an activity. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they go, okay, who can I take with me to play golf or, yep. or bowling? And, yep. and then there's the European version of friendship where oh. uh, I'm interested in the people. Now we're going to hang out. What can we do? Interesting. Uh, so you think Americans put the activity first and Europeans put the, 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 the friendship first? Yes, uh, because in Europe, there's much less stuff to do mm. and there's or historically there may have been historically you're not driving all the golf courses are in scotland <laughs> so <laughs> you know uh, so you have a more limited choice of, yeah. of what to do and, and game night um kind of like keeps switching keeps well, switching back and forth between those versions that, that's interesting because i might I, I i might fall i might be a part of that i mean i might actually as an american not be, like I was trying to put myself in your shoes and be like, if all my friends were really into something that I didn't care about, would I spend 
two nights of my week. Do I don't think I would. Like if you guys were all like, I'm trying to think, I don't know, it's like super into like crochet or something like, and I just like, it just didn't do anything for me. I don't think I'd sit and knit with you guys like on my Mondays and Fridays. Uh, I'm still full of myself. So <laughs> I wouldn't be doing something that I didn't enjoy on okay. some level okay. uh, or was a little bit good at or right. competitive at. Uh, I'm not as good a gamer as you or Paul or Trey Ooh, or Tom about that. or Alfred or, or, or Jesse or Jake, true. but... Jake's but, thankful you added him in. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm competitive that I, I don't always make a fool of myself um, and I understand if, what I'm doing. If somebody who had never played with us before sat down, I guarantee you by the end of the first game, they could not pick out the quote-unquote non-gamer. I don't believe they could. I, I think you you are... I mean, what's funny is I think you're a gamer. I mean, I think you're a non-gamer in the sense that, like, if we said right now, guys, were transitioning from game night to movie night, two nights a week, and, and movie and dinner night, I think you would be thrilled. Uh, I would be thrilled. Yeah. Let me put it to you this way. I really enjoy walking. Uh, I don't really like driving, but mm-hmm. I still drive everywhere because I live in Los Angeles. Uh, and if Paul sits down with me and we go for a long drive to have a conversation, I'm completely, totally fine with that. And I'm probably not going to crash. Right. Well, I really hope that you enjoy my friendship because we are going to be talking board games for the next hour and change. Uh, and I hope that you stay uh, stay interested in what we're going to be talking about. I am because I love your podcast. Thank you so much. And we are going to be reviewing a game that you like. I Maybe love. I, this is a game that you really enjoy. This is actually my favorite um, unique card game. Yeah, engine builder, unique card game. We're going to be reviewing the fourth expansion for terraforming mars which is called colonies but we're also going to be talking about terraforming mars in general in a way this is sort of going to be our terraforming mars uh review and explanation we're going to talk about all of the expansions how we think they best work together how you should play the game and of course focusing on uh the newest uh released expansion we'll also be talking talking a little bit about turmoil which just uh finished its kickstarter run and will be coming by the end of the year and for me terraforming mars is a very important game because i started out hating it and i ended up really loving it interesting and that doesn't happen to me ever usually if i hate a game i can grow to tolerate it right but uh, I actually actively want to play Terraforming Mars, uh, and I'm going to talk about how and why that happened. Amazing. Okay. Well, let's move into this week's game night. Of course, we played Terraforming Mars with everything. We had our smallest game night yet since the beginning of this podcast. Uh, Tom was sick. Trey, I think, was out of town. Paul had a friend in town. Uh, we were down to five people, and then at the last minute, we were down to four because Jesse canceled the last second because he's moving. Totally understandable. We were down to half, half of our game night, which is a great number for a game night because you can play anything at four. Absolutely. And we chose to play Terraforming Mars, and I think it's best at four. I'm saying that right now. I love Terraforming Mars at four. I think it plays great at all other things. I think five feels just a tiny bit too long in between turns, although turns are pretty fast. Um, You know, it's the drafting. I think drafting cards with five people takes... like pushes my totally. limit a little I, bit. I will play it anytime with five. I, I don't mind it. I just think four is mwah. It's just the perfect sure. number to play that game at. So that was really fun. We had a great time. Uh, it was, uh, let's see. 
Wait, so the winner of the game was Alfred. Alfred, yes. Yes. And, and he was behind most of the game. Well, well Daedalus, uh, Mars is perfect for Daedalus because unlike Icarus, who flew towards the sun <laughs> and burned up, Daedalus went the other direction and right. colonized and mastered <laughs> the outer planets. No, Mars played, is not an outer planet, sorry. He played a very interesting game. He did very well. Uh, I thought I had it in the bag. I thought I was doing well. Uh, but I, you and I tied for second, which we was a wonderful... We tied for second because It's not easy I, to tie in Terraforming Mars. No, it's no, a, no, no, no. Scores can be quite disparate. And it was very scary. I got one card uh, that let me grow cows very early, yeah. and I, I got like 16 points off of that one yeah. card. Uh, it, it was stunning. Uh, without that card, uh, I would have been behind by about well, 10 points. That's classic engine building. I mean, you had a card in the beginning you knew was strong, and you built your engine to facilitate that card, so you'd get the most out of it by the end. That's right. It's also a unique card uh, right. quality. Totally. Um I uh, I also stole Tom's game night. Tom came down with some kind of horrible cold. That Oh, no, he was out of town, I think. He came down for a horrible cold for my game night. His game night, I believe he was out of town. I stole Tom's game night, and we did a strange thing. I had, it was you, me, Trey, and Paul, if, I, if I'm correct. Yes, another beautiful uh, company of people. And we played a game I would not expect to play with that group. We played uh, Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle Earth, and Trey actually wanted to play it which is unlike uh trey at least for me in terms of we're playing a episodic chaotic luck slightly luck well not slightly a, a, a luck driven uh skirmish mission-based thematic game trey <laughs> a loves fantasy flight game trey loves anything to do with druids yes uh, sure. he does it's a secret side of him that uh, he designed a druid uh based druid celt Based That's right. game. That's right. And, and even though, board game actually, and even though Lord of the Rings is not, it kind of is. Sure, absolutely. And I think it went well. I think we had a, we, it was the first time I played not solo. And I love, I actually really enjoyed playing with four people. I don't think it felt slow. Something happened that I feel really, really needs to be remarked on. Mm. Um, I came in a little bit late. Yep. We had uh, done one round without yes, you, and I played I your character. I sat down and I started playing. Almost instantly. Which is a wonderful thing about this system because it's the, the DM of the game, the dungeon master, if you will, is run by an iPad or a phone or whatever app you want to use, even your computer. So the teach, the teach is really short. Yeah. Uh, and, All I have and, to say and is... You, you sit down and you start playing. And I think for a lot of people, that is an attraction. Yeah. All, you don't even need to do anything. It just comes to your turn. And I go, Dimitri, here's the things you can do. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Here's how the deck system works. I think that takes two minutes tops. I think I taught you the whole thing in two minutes. The and now just, what do you want to do? It's very intuitive. Uh, the actions are intuitive. And, and the tests are intuitive. Like the, yeah. There's a great relationship between how you use the cards uh, and what the narrative is. Mm -hmm. so, so you know, oh, this is going to be an agility test. This is going to be, you can anticipate That's that. Right. This yeah. is a test of wit. Which is a very, a, a very D and D thing. You played D and D in your past. I right? did. I played D and D in, in junior high school. That's amazing. Yeah. So it, it, there's a very a strong D and D thing of here's your stats. Here's what you're good at. You know, and you can kind of intuit. Uh, you know, does the person with agility want to cross the creaky bridge? Probably. 
Does the does the warrior with an agility of one want to cross the creaky bridge? Nah, I should probably let somebody else do it. You know, you can make sort of basic de- and, and the game, the app will surprise you sometimes with some unusual decisions. But for the most part, it's it's intuitive. And you know, if if you're going to be fighting, if you're going to be breaking down a door, you want to send your strongest person in there. Um, but yeah, I thought it went well. I thought everybody had a good tr- a good time with it. I don't necessarily know if anybody's clamoring to play it again. We 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 won uh, by the skin of our teeth. We won the first. Uh, scenario which is a very it's very sure. difficult for the first, first scenario. quest the quest, first yeah. mission sure uh it it, it we it, barely yes. won we barely i mean it was a an exciting ending of like uh it was a very exciting ending of i have absolutely no idea if we're actually going to succeed at this and it, and it didn't sort of come down to a final role but i think we also used our abilities well like we wouldn't have even had a chance at that final role if we hadn't have planned our abilities pretty well there's no rolling literally but you are drawing cards and there's uh, am i going to hit a success or a fail well the game has some beautifully um uh manufactured pieces uh, representing our characters yeah. and also representing yeah, the villains. Some nice plastic minis. Yeah, and it threw a whole bunch of us uh, from all uh, sides towards the end, uh, and it looked very threatening. Yeah. But for this first uh, quest, uh, the uh, villains were actually fairly easy to kill. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so. That until was they, an, until they ganged up on us, and there was about forty of them in one spot. Th- th- that's right. So the, it, it's we call an that the murder box. Yeah. That's an interesting balance. Uh, yeah. A whole bunch of villains that are easy to kill mm-hmm. can really raise your temperature and can really yeah. make it seem no, like they can you're fighting quickly. for your life. No, at you the know? end, we were all trapped in one spot. There was, I think, every bad guy in the game had had swarmed upon us, and one person needed to escape it alive and basically hit the final button and win the game. And uh, the first person failed, did not get out, like got, got really badly hurt trying to escape. Because when you try to do something other than attack, you have to do a, uh, you know, a, a, what is it called? Uh, an opportunity. They get, the, the enemy gets an opportunity attack at you. But every enemy in the spades gets an opportunity attack. So if you try to leave in a space with a lot of enemies, each one of them gets a swing at you before you get out. So it was like, all right, guys, only one of us needs to get out of here and walk right over there and hit the button. First it's person a- failed, second person failed, and then it was down to me and Trey. And uh, I, I, I cleared. I think I cleared a path for him to a certain extent. And he was able to get out and slam that button. And it was, it was a, it was definitely a, a celebratory and exciting ending. I feel like if the people who designed the game were watching, they would have been like, that went perfectly. I think Star Wars ended that way. Yes, it did. Yes. Bit, yeah. Uh, but you always want your, your skirmish games to end that way. You always want to feel like, oh, boy, we, we really barely made it out of there alive. Um, I'm excited to try it again. Uh, what's nice about it is I don't have to necessarily play with the same people again. Uh, it saves your progress in the quest. I can pull it out with anybody. The storyline is not wildly necessary. And I can just, here we go. Now we're doing another quest. Or it has that Gloomhaven feel of like, you don't really have to keep the same persistent party. Sure. And, and really anyone with some familiarity with uh, the mechanisms of uh, Mage Knight yep. or, or Gloomhaven yep. uh, or D&D can sit down and yeah. just play. Oh, it's a great beginner game, but I think it's also a game for people who like games too. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys, we're moving into the news and we have a jingle. Ah, that feels good. It's it not does. just me singing the news again. Thanks to a uh, friend of the podcast, Mark Nowy. I think I'm saying it correctly, Dimitri, am I? 
I wish I knew. It's N-A-U. Yeah. Let me know if I'm wrong, Mark, but I I feel like I've heard Trey and Tom say it that way. Uh, But maybe they're just being silly and making fun of your name. I don't know. Uh, I took a run at it. But I'm very glad to have that jingle. Let's move into the news. Uh, I feel like we're always talking about splatter games lately in the news, but they have been in the news a lot lately. Um, And anything about splatter makes me excited. Today, we're going to be talking about Roads and Boats, the fifth edition. Now, this is another splatter title I have never played. Splatter, of course makes the heaviest of the heavy, beautiful, lovely artisan board games, most well-known for Food Chain Magnet or Indonesia or Antiquity. But Roads and Boats is a lot of people's favorite splatter game. It is one of the first. It has gone through many iterations, and we are getting, I believe, the 20th anniversary at this point. Um, and it is up for pre-order right now on their on their site. It's not cheap, like any splatter game. You are looking at uh, about $130 with shipping from... Uh, from what is it holland no uh yeah maybe it is um i've never played it and i don't know if you or tom actually have the original edition tom does have the original the only real difference between this anniversary edition of it is that this is the first time they are including the expansion in the base game box so you are getting everything that has ever existed for roads and boats in one big box it's a hundred dollar game plus thirty dollar shipping from Holland. You could wait until it comes to America, but with like all splatter games, you kind of risk losing the Mad Max style fight that will happen once it lands on shores here, as there are you know a hundred copies and five hundred people want one. So uh, I don't know. I'm in a quandary. I've not yet decided if I'm purchasing it. I it's so hard to pass up on splatter releases because if you don't buy them when they come out, it might be ten years before you can get one at retail price which is still a crazy price uh but if you tried to buy roads and boats right now you're paying 250 300 for it so if it's a game you really want to get it at 100 you might never get it again what's the replayability of it wildly replayable so, so roads and boats is a very strange game if you were to look at it you get all of these sort of hex tiles of land right different types of land but then you place a plexiglass not plexiglass you place a transparent plastic sheet over the board And then with dry erase markers, you draw roads. That's part of the game, is is drawing these uh, strategically placed roads that connect certain things. And uh, it is, I've never seen a game use that before. I think it looks very odd and very fiddly and strange. Um, But part of the fun of it is that the game comes with all these different scenarios. So uh, all these different map configurations that make it wildly different every time. I think it's, I would probably compare it to Age of Steam in the sense that like it's a system, but the the way the game is the way the board is configured at the, at, will will make it feel like a totally different game from any other one you've played before. How long does it take? Uh, I would imagine it's two to three hours splatter length. Um, okay, so so it's not wildly long. It's just a very dense, yeah, let's uh, see intellectual. What B, well, BGG says two hours to four hours, two to four hours. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it plays two to six players, which is a nice spread. Um, I, you've not played this with Tom? He's, he's played it a lot. He, he loves it. He, he owns it. If I have played it, I don't remember. Right. But I don't think I have. Okay. Uh, there are certain games that Tom has that he only brings out with certain people that he knows he can beat. <laughs> well, this, <laughs> shots fired. Uh, but this is definitely... I love Tom. Of course. Uh, but this is... This, I'll show you the box cover. It's famously... Uh, quaint with this sort of hand-drawn oh. donkey on it now the people have often said it looks like 
uh, a very unprofessional cover to it, but apparently one of their old employees who worked for them, you know, 20 years ago drew it and they have such a warm feeling for her that they, they actually have said they will never change it no matter how many people want them. It to. looks like outsider art, sure, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, but, but it looks not like bad outsider it looks like art, you know, a, a young child did their best. Uh, and, and the and, and, donkey is charming. There is something really lovely about it, and uh, it's definitely... I uh, recommend it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you should definitely at least check out the art. It's amazing. But the donkey on the cover is kind of a meme in the board gaming world of, uh, you know, the Roads and Boats donkey. Um, so Roads and Boats, uh, order it now through Splatter's site if you want to, or probably for, uh, forever regret not doing so, like I will. Uh, there is a new game from Friedman Fries, who is most famous for uh, Power Grid, which is a game that uh-huh. is basically... Uh, good a good version of monopoly he has a new game coming out called fast sloths uh this looks like now he's done some sort of lighter games uh in the last few years he hasn't actually done anything that i was like super excited about since power grid um he has a solo game called friday that i think is pretty cool but he is a, a a very interesting designer, very prolific, always trying new things. Uh, and this looks like sort of a return to form on sort of a heavier card based uh, euro. I mean, this looks this looks like uh, yeah, the board is power grid sized, and it, it definitely looks like a gamer's game. Um, the cover of the box uh, shows a sloth with four fingers, which is funny because sloths have either two or three. Uh, but this is a, a much more, uh, uh, this is an advanced evolutionary wise sloth, I imagine, and uh, maybe the future of all sloths to come. I didn't even know that sloths were real <laughs> instead of just animated sure. uh, things that sure. we're supposed to laugh at. Well, I guess it's called fast sloths. So, you know, this is... Uh, Are there any other animals finger? named after sins? Oh, interesting. Is there an anger? No, I don't think there's like a greed animal. That's true. Well, I think was the sin was named after the animal, not the other way around. Who knows? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, if Which anybody first, knows... The sloth or the sin? If anybody knows, please write to, what's our P.O. box again? It's uh, Matthew at GameBrainPod.com. Okay. Uh, Lots of exciting uh, Kickstarters are ending this week. Uh, On Mars will have ended by the time you hear this. Terraform Mars Turmoil will have ended by the time you hear this. Uh, Often these these things, if you miss them, you can check the website or the Kickstarter, and they'll often have a pre-order button or a late backer button. So check that out if you missed it. AEG, one of the uh, uh, one of the larger American uh, board game publishers, uh, they're most known for Thunderstone, which is a really fun deck builder, and Edge of Darkness. Uh, they have uh, made a very interesting proclamation this week. Sort of a, I imagined it being like Jerry Maguire in the beginning with his mission statement. Where I think he was, a, you know, less money, less clients, you know, more personability or whatever his line was. But AEG has released a letter basically saying that they are going to produce less games. Uh, I'm going to read you a little bit of their published mission statement. It's no secret that AEG has in the last few years sold a couple of our premier product lines. And we have also launched Thunderstone and Edge of Darkness on Kickstarter, something we would have never done seven years ago. I realize that people have strong opinions on both these topics, so I will be doing a deeper dive into why we made these decisions and our opinion on how companies can become their better selves when the market changes and still take advantage of new opportunities. For now, we can say that AEG is using the sales of those games to make the goal of doing fewer games a reality. It would be nearly impossible to make this change without cash reserves. To make this work, you must invest in your games upfront and take a bigger risk, all of which are not possible if your product decisions are affected by the cash flow monster we were talking about above. We have not set a hard target on the number of games we will publish in a year. Who knows? Maybe the holy grail is one new game. 
That seems crazy, especially to us since we love games so much. But who knows? We have gone from as many as 20 new titles down to five or six. For now, we are happy with the idea that every game we decide to publish will be a game that we think has its best chance to succeed. And rather than looking onto the next product, we are going to give every game its chance to find its place in the sun. Now, I think that is the end of their, their statement there. Uh, I think less games is a good thing. We have a we can easily say that this is a heavily flooded market right now. You are never wanting for a new game. There are always more than you can possibly play or afford. It's almost like what's happening in television right now, where it's like there's so many good shows that you can only really watch the best of the best, the cream of the crop, unless you're going to be planning on watching TV six hours a night. So board games, I feel like we're in a similar place. I really have to be very choosy. I remember when I first got into this hobby, uh, you know, you'd go months without a new great game coming out. There, there is not a week that goes by right now where there isn't a game that is at least worth trying. Uh, not, you know, maybe once a month there's a must-buy game. I mean, that, you know, that's crazy that we have at least a minimum of 12 incredible AAA titles coming out a year right now. So the idea of a publisher going, we hear you. We know your pocketbooks are hurting. We know that you know, what you really want is a few great games. Uh, and to focus on that, I think, is exciting. and something that I would definitely encourage other publishers, if they can afford to, as they said, it is a cost thing. You know, if you want to keep your company afloat, you got to put out a lot of games, and not all of them can take the time and care that the true gems require. I have a different take on that. Um, there's something called the Pareto Principle, uh, and it's a business principle. Pareto? Pareto. Uh, and it's named after... Is that the guy from Fast and the Furious? Uh, Dominic no, Pareto? He's an economist uh, who is famous for articulating the Pareto Principle. I was making a joke. I wasn't serious about uh, uh, I don't know what this Fast and Furious is that you're invoking oh, I here. I guarantee you've seen everyone. <laughs> yes, I have, actually. But the Pareto Principle says that 80% of your results come from 20% of your efforts. Okay. Like most movies um, get 80% of their business from 20% of the theaters. Sure. Um, yeah. So every once in a while, someone tries to game the Pareto principle, usually a newly minted MBA, uh, and they go, ooh, if we get 80% of our profits from 20% of our products, what if we just make that 20%? We would be so rich. Uh, and of course, the problem is you don't know. You don't right. know which 20% it's going to be. Uh, and uh, that's why the Pareto principle is a principle. Uh, and if you know in advance uh, what games are going to be successful, um, go ahead. Mm -hmm. They don't. Right. But, I mean, it works. For, I mean, I think there is definitely a ceiling on how big you can be with this model. But I think Splatter is a great example of it. Or, you know, Capstone, the people who they have their audience, they know what they want, and they're not going to flood them with a lot of things. They're going to know that when they release, it means quality. And so you sure. can almost buy their brand sight unseen. I mean, there are a few people who make games. I will buy their games sight unseen. What's your game is a, is a, is, is a company that pretty much whatever they put out, I will buy it because they put out one game a year and they are awesome and they know what they're doing. They probably have a smaller market share. Yeah. Uh, and they service a specific taste. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and, uh, and uh, AEG is broader. They're trying, they, they're casting a wider net. They're thinking that they can uh, uh, basically uh, capture all the different uh, constituencies with fewer games. Right. 
Well, we'll see. Good luck to them. They are in California, one of the few California-based board game publishers. Maybe the only one. I actually can't think of another. Riot Games, but they're more known for uh, uh, League of Legends. But they did make uh, Mechs versus Minions a couple of years ago, which was great. And if they beat Pareto, they will get the Nobel Prize exactly. for economics. Uh, a few more things in game news. Tiny Towns, a very exciting uh, sort of light to medium weight quote unquote, you know, uh, super filler, uh, came out this week. They're doing a really interesting release model, which I think is interesting, uh, worth noting, which is that they are releasing the game only to FLGSs, friendly local game stores first for two weeks. If you want to buy this game, you have to travel to a brick and mortar shop and buy it or wait two weeks and buy it at all of your online shops, wherever you want. Um, I think that's great. I think it's, it is, uh, I think it's going to be a big hit for them. I think this is a game you're going to see everywhere at conventions over the next few years i think it's a kind of game you could teach somebody in 30 seconds but has a lot of depth um my copy comes next week um i'm very excited for that picking up at my friendly local game shop as soon as they get it in uh but if you wait to the 10th you can get tiny towns it is how do i describe it it is a uh tableau no not tableau building you are place it's sort of a tetrisy spatial puzzle where uh there is some uh varying board setup and it is hard to describe look it up uh tiny towns uh is coming out very soon uh but it is now in local game shops if you call yours and see if they got it and it's the netflix model right? yeah that's like, right you know you, sure. you release a movie in the theaters first the theaters and then first for netflix. a couple of weeks yeah. and and then you offer it but i think tiny towns is worth looking at i guarantee we will have a review of it uh probably in the next round uh, the Anachrony expansion Kickstarter is finishing up. Uh, a lot of people love Anachrony. It is a sort of time travel worker placement game. I have never played it. Uh, I have heard there is slightly too high of a level of chaos in it for my taste, but um, it's definitely something I've seen a lot of conventions and looks exciting. would like to try it. That expansion is finishing up right now on Kickstarter. Check it out if you are interested in it. Uh, Democker. Constantly just they're putting up new images on BoardGameGeek of, of what this new version is going to look like. These ones... Uh, definitely look very new. They've made some sort of what seems like large changes to the rules or at least notable changes to the rules. Uh, and yet no announcement on what they're going to be doing with Demacher. Demacher, which is Tom's favorite board game of all time and um, a uh, simulation of uh, the German, German, German uh, parliament. parliament. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, let's talk about games on the brain. This is where we talk about games that we are currently thinking about or excited about. There is no jingle for it. So to punish you for that, I will go games on the brain. Yeah. What have I been thinking about? I appreciate that, Dimitri. What have I been thinking about this week? Well, Tiny Towns, I'm excited to play it. Definitely watch some rules, overviews of it and excited for my copy to come in. Underwater Cities, uh, a game that Tom talked about a few weeks ago. I finally got my hands on a copy. It's coming in today. I'm hoping maybe we can get it to the table tonight at Tom's game night. Uh, he's played the, the last two game nights. Oh, he has? He oh. has, yes. Okay, well, I didn't, know, I didn't know he had a copy. I thought it was somebody else's copy that he was playing. Uh, uh, not this copy, but he played the game. Gotcha. Well, I'm excited to play it. Maybe I can get it to the table tonight. Um, I got in BGG board game geek. They have their own store where they sell some cool things. And there's an awesome component that I bought this week that I want to talk about. And these it's are awesome. It really it's amazing. Is. It's, uh, yeah, go uh, ahead and describe it. I, I want to actually try to pull it up on their website so I can tell you, tell you exactly the name of it. But basically picture silicon coasters of multiple colors. And these silicon coasters can be then folded up into little component cups. 
uh, and they come in. I have, I think I bought a set of 13. It wasn't wildly cheap. It was about $40 for 13 of them. These are called Geek Up, one word, G-E-E-K-U-P, Bit Bowls. Uh, you can buy them individually for $3 each. I bought a whole set for, I think it was $40 of shipping. Uh, but these, honestly, I feel are going to be game changing for me. I think to like, you know, anytime you play a board game, you have to just pour out all the bits, you know, in little piles, right? Oh, not pour out all the beers. No, no, that's what you do. You knock over all the beers. On Diet the Coke, yeah, you do that. Yes. Uh, so it is so nice to always keep them organized, to be able to actually pick up a whole handful of them in a little cup and hand them to somebody if they're across the table, as opposed to them reaching over, knocking over beer, spilling things. This could actually save your board games. Uh, they are, they, I mean, it's also nice to have it that, that they, they, they are great coasters. I mean, I, I kept my, my beverage on it all night, uh, wipe it off real quick, fold it up, throw some components in there, keep all your player pieces in there. There's lots of colors. You can color code them by player color. I think they're great. Check them out. I think this is uh, one of those like rare things that makes every game feel a little fancier and a little nicer. So uh, as opposed to just cool components for a specific game, this will work for all of them. You my have games. amazing game holders, partitions. Yes, uh, my organ- I, do, I do love my board game organizers. Oh, it's a pleasure to play at your place. Thank you so much. Uh, let's update you on the 8x8 challenge. Bad news, we, we didn't add any check marks to the 8x8 challenge this week. Uh, we failed. We promised we would check off one box every week. I blame the fact that we only had four people. I think sure. some, the other four would have checked a box for us. Uh, I rely on them as often I have to play whatever game we're reviewing this week. Uh, but hopefully, next time, not hopefully, I'm saying right now, we are going to check a box next time, no matter what. Um, let's move on. To our game review. Also, don't have a section, a uh, little theme song for that. So I'm going to go. Da 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 da. Game review. Yeah, Dimitri, hit it. I can't <laughs> equal that. I cannot match that. That that Man. was beautiful. That was sweet. It was soulful. I set it up. You did knock it down. It, it was R. Kelly esque. Let's talk about terraforming Mars. Now, if you've been living under a board game rock, you don't know what terraforming Mars is. So let me break it down for you. Terraforming Mars is easily easily the most successful euro of the last three years came out in 2016 was a massive hit despite the fact that it's kind of ugly and not the most wonderful components no shame to anybody who worked on it but it uh i actually like it i i I like the way it looks i like the art style but i think uh, even the, the thickness of the cards or some of the components just doesn't necessarily feel up to snuff of a lot of other things. But I think this has done a, a great service to board gamers because it has proven that really gameplay is all that matters. And people are willing to look aside from, you know, not the highest quality components. It's not full of exciting minis. Uh, and it has still flourished and become wildly popular. Definitely the 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 first sort of guaranteed classic of the last couple of years like people will be playing this game in 10 years i think that uh, the arc is meant to invoke a very specific 1980s it does. 90s it does but outside of, of just fiction. the art the components are often lacking one of the, the things that people talk about a lot is we have these player boards now i have there is an entire secondary market of people out there who are willing to let you pay silly amounts of money to upgrade all your components in the game and you better believe I've taken advantage of them. So my player boards are gorgeous. The player boards that come they in are. the game, though, are just little pieces of cardboard. And you have to put about nine little plastic cubes in very specific places on those. And if you even breathe on it, 
Good luck remembering where all your cubes were before. So it is actually a real component issue. It's not just the art. It is the fact that a lot of people... It's if a you, playability it's issue. It's a playability issue. If you bump it and you lose track of, of where all your cubes were on there, the game is over. I mean, it's kind of broken. I don't know how you reset it. So you really have to be very careful. You have to make sure nobody bumps the table or accidentally brushes all your cubes off. Uh, so You I, have to be playing with Alfred. Yes, the rule will. lawyer who will remember he where will they remember. were. Yes, uh, I have a lovely broken token uh, organizer, which makes sure that the cubes stay in their little places with these sort of wooden overlays that hold everything in They place. are laser cut they are laser wood, cut wood and they are gorgeous and they are beautiful. And there's a card holder that's yep. gorgeous and beautiful. And every card you put into a plastic sleeve that's not clunky, <laughs> but thin and sleek yes. and lovely to handle. Dragon shield sleeves, which are definitely the most expensive sleeves you can get. And I happen to have played a lot of LCGs, so I I have a lot of them lying around and I was able to sleeve probably 400 cards in this game. There are a lot of cards. So let's quickly talk about Terraformers. What is it? It is a nuts and bolts engine builder. Uh, But it did something that no other game had done as successfully as this. And I'm not necessarily sure anybody's ever really done this, but it is a deck of unique cards. So usually when you have a deck of cards in a game like this, or even in a deck building game, you're going to have lots of the same cards, right? You're going to have money cards. You're going to have this, you're going to have that. This is a deck of a hundred plus cards in the base game. And every single card is unique. Well, isn't that a nightmare to teach? No, because all you need to really learn is the basics, how things work. And then every time you get a handful of cards, you can understand what they all do because the symbols are pretty clear. And there's only so many things the cards can do. The first few times I played the game, that drove me crazy Mm -hmm. uh, because I had uh, an underlying uh, assumption uh, about all board games uh, that is actually a part of the whole board game ethos, uh, which is a level playing field. Right. Uh, And unique card games do not have a level playing field. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, I started to love the game when I realized, when I adjusted my expectations, that this is not a level playing field. It is a bumpy mm-hmm. playing field. Yep. Uh, we're going to have local maximums and minimums. that mm-hmm. are, But ultimately, uh, because there are all these different unique cards that give you a choice of strategies, each of which or enough of them will be able to give you the opportunity to score points and win the game. Um, It's it just a more complicated bumpiness yeah. rather than a straight edge. And, and the moment that I accepted that and the moment that that I looked forward to that and anticipated that, I actually grew to really love it. Well, I think, I think the bumpiness you're speaking to could be called tactics as opposed to strategy. I think this is a game that that is, uh, and I'm just pulling this number out of my butt, I'd say 70% tactics, 30% strategy, meaning you cannot sit down at the beginning of this game and go, I'm going to try this strategy because it is really, really about what cards you get and making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, It's like sculpting out of driftwood. It's whatever washes up on your beach. Right. But you have to recognize the shape that the card can become right. and, and where it can fit in your overall right. scheme. Uh, and the good thing about that is that the narrative yeah. is really, really intuitive. Yeah, well, let's talk about the story of Terraforming Mars. So you are Terraforming Mars, and we are all different corporations who are playing the game. And if you're playing the version that we play, uh, which is not the beginner version, you all have asymmetric powered 
corporation. So everybody is dealt two corporations at the beginning of the game, and they pick one. Each one of them is going to have a different amount of starting money and usually some kind of rule-breaking power. Uh, the goal of the game, though, is all these corporations have to terraform Mars. So there are three different endgame conditions. Once all three of these are met, the game is going to end at the end of that round. Those three conditions are oxygen, heat, and oceans. So you must build nine oceans on the planet. You must get the oxygen meter all the way to the top, and you must get the heat all the way to the top. Yeah, 14% oxygen and I think 8 yeah. uh, degrees centigrade. So once all three of those are met, uh, the game will end at the end of that round, and whoever has the most points wins. So, But you are rewarded for hitting any one of these things. So anytime that you are bumping up one of the three endgame parameters, you are given... A, uh, a victory point as well as a, an increased income every round. So there is a huge benefit to being involved in. In fact, I don't necessarily think you can win the game if you're not helping a little bit because there's so many points to be had from that. Um, and also you get so many little perks and bonuses every time you do it as well. So we're all incentivized to get to the end game. I mean, people who have a fast engine are more incentivized. People who have a slow engine can slow it down, but that's kind of the fun of the game is that everybody has a different lev level of control of how fast the game is going to end. Um, but they're all equally incentivized to not, you know, to take part in the terraforming of Mars. There are also little bonuses at various stages yep. uh, exactly. of temperature and oxygen. Exactly. Um, this is very much a card-based game. It, it will appeal to people who like Magic the Gathering. It will appeal to people who like deck builders. Uh, and there are two ways to play this game. And the first one, I don't recommend for anybody, even on your first game. The first way to play this is just to be dealt cards every round. At the beginning of the game, you're going to get two corporations, as we said, and you're going to pick one. You're also going to get 10 cards. That's always the same. Everybody always starts with 10 cards. From those 10, you decide how many you want to keep. Well, why not keep all of them? Because they cost $3 each just to keep them. And that money is going to be de deducted from the starting money that's listed on your corporation. So there's a real cost to playing these. And that cost does not also include the cost on the cards when you want to play them. So if you have a card that's going to cost 24, it's really going to cost 27 because you're paying three just to keep the card and then 24 to play it. So you have to take all those calculations in, uh, which is nice at the beginning. You're not drafting because that would take a long time and there'd be a lot of AP in it. So here's your 10 cards. How many do you want to keep? Okay. But for every round after that, there are two versions of the game. One is you're dealt four cards. There you go. The other is, well, you're dealt four cards. You decide how many you want to keep, $3 each. The other version is a drafting me mechanism. Now, this is where you're dealt four cards. You pass three, keep one. You do that till you have four cards. Then you decide how many you want to pay for and keep. I would not play the game without that version. I don't think it's a good game without that version, I will say as bluntly as that. I think the amount of chaos and randomness that comes from not drafting makes it uh, uh, not, not worth my time. Uh, I would because somebody can just be dealt the nuts, as they say in poker. Somebody can just be dealt the perfect combo. Somebody can be dealt uh, nothing. Somebody can be dealt. You know, this is a chance to filter. Now, this is a game to me of filtering strategies. You start out, and in order to play this game properly, you have to keep almost all of the strategies on the table. Uh, you you know you know a little bit what you're good at because you have your starting cards and you have your corporation you've chosen. But you need you can't just pick one thing. You have to keep. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this. 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 Okay. Two rounds later. All right, I'm gonna knock this one off. Now now there's three things I'm going for. Two rounds after that. Okay, it's down to these two. These are the two main things I'm focusing on. By the very end of the game, there is one thing that you are jamming on in order to get your points. So you are slowly filtering down. So not drafting makes that impossible. It makes it a purely tactical game, but also not necessarily a very fun one because somebody could just be handed the exact card they've been waiting for. Now, of course, at the beginning of a round when they look at four cards, they could also see that card. 
But if everybody else is aware of what everybody else is doing, they're not going to see another one and because you are going to make sure that they don't. I want to say two more things about drafting. Uh, normally, I hate drafting because it takes up so much time. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, it's a unique card game, right? Yeah. Uh, and drafting lets you see more cards. Mm-hmm. It, it lets you see 10 cards yeah. uh, every round instead of four. Right. Uh, and uh, that's very important. If you're playing with, yeah, yeah. If you're playing with four people, right. yes. And, and that's very important. The other thing about drafting is, is that it tells a better story mm-hmm. because these are corporations they are colonizing Mars, right? One corporation may not, may discard the technology that another corporation will pick up and exploit yep. be, be, because of how they're set up. So in this case, a game mechanic uh, actually it, it plugs into the game narrative in a way that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, thematically, it also is is loosely based on some great science fiction. Yes, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars right. trilogy. Which is a, about the terraforming of Mars. Uh, and the designers themselves have said that that was their main influence on it. But there are a lot of cards in the game that give some nods towards some other great sci-fi writers. And there's definitely uh, enough fun there for people who love sci-fi or love uh you know the i, I consider Ken myself Stanley a, robinson's mars trilogy i consider myself a science fiction fan so i i like it It was when, not lost on you no um jacob frixelius is the designer i have not said that yet uh this is definitely jacob's claim to fame i mean he if we look at his board game thing he did a few other games before this uh, there was a game called Space Station in 2011 and After the Virus, which came out a year after Terraforming Mars. But this is, I mean, this is the Isaac Childress level of, you know, just come out of the gate swinging hard and blowing everybody's mind um, with a massive. I mean, this is the number four ranked game overall on Board Game Geek. Um, the top four is Gloomhaven and Through the Ages and Terraforming Mars and Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and then Twilight Struggle rounding us out at five. And I really believe this game earns its place there. I think I think this is the defining game of the last five years. I think this will always be a classic Euro. Um, I think it's a, a wonderfully uh, heavy game, but that casuals can feel not too overwhelmed with because it, it, the tactical level of it. I mean, it's not. It is not you know uh, Kalis where you sit down and uh, the better player is always going to win. Uh, the better player will usually win in this, but there is a certain level of tactics and fun and there's that agricola thing of like well even if i'm getting my butt kicked i i'm still building a beautiful engine that i can be proud of at the end of the game which gives people satisfaction even if they're not at the top of the score charts and every one of those unique 400 cards not only has a carefully designed and beautifully balanced mechanism, but also has a story. Right. Has a story about something happening on the surface of the planet yeah. that has some narrative interest and, and has some plausibility. Yeah, no, it's scientific plausibility. I mean, some of them, I mean, we often play the cards and we joke about and laugh about what's happening on the cards. Like I've, you know, I'm sending an asteroid over to your part of the, to the, to the, the world right now and blowing up some of your stuff. And there is a, there is a tiny element of take that in the game, but I've never found it to be detrimental or feel like it was very swingy. It's usually, uh, it's also optional. So a lot of times players will go, I'm not going to do that because if you're going to start a war with somebody, you better be prepared to uh, have them swing back. So a lot of times people go like, I'm not doing this. Nobody attack me. I'm not attacking you. But sometimes people will go, uh, 
this asteroid hits, you lose two plants. Not a huge thing. It could slow your, your round down a little bit, uh, but it's never like I wipe out your engine. It's never going to be this huge sort of swingy take that aspect to it. But I, I like that it's there. There's a level, a level of interaction, which I think some of the expansions also add to as well. And there's a logic to it. Like when I started breeding cows, I had to reduce my forest growing capacity right. because the cows are eating the plants. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, and... I like that. That, that. That's an extra step that somebody, the designer, goes right. uh, that not all games have. Uh, we're going to talk about overall strategy a little bit, and then we're going to move into the expansions. Uh, there are two main ways to win this game. One of them is cities and forests. Uh, now, this is there is a game board, a physical game board that you were playing on and laying a tiles map on, of the planet. a map of the planet. And there are a few other maps that we'll talk about with expansions. But the game comes with one map of the planet, and you are going to be laying uh, tiles on that, either oceans or some of the uh, special tiles that come in the cards. But mostly you're going to be laying forests. And sometimes you're going to be laying cities. Now, forests are worth one point each. When you lay a forest, it also increases the oxygen, which makes sense. Uh, and which gives you a little extra uh, income and a point for the end of the game. Uh, and at the end of the game, each one of those forests is worth one point. But if you have a city, which you place a city, which you can either do through cards, or I think it costs $25 if you want to do it as a standard project. Standard projects are just basically actions you always have access to regardless of your cards. If you want to lay a city down, each city is worth one point for every adjacent forest. So this is a hexagonal board. So if, if something's in the middle, there are six things that can be around it. So each city could be worth six points. But if you control all six of those forests... That could be 12 points because each forest is worth one point. And that's a lot of points in a game that maybe will go up to 50, 60, 70 points in a four-player, five-player game. Uh, so cities and forests are definitely a strategy you often see people going for. And you don't want to fight too hard over that. If you see everybody going forests, it's probably not a good idea to because uh, the oxygen is going to level out really quickly. If everybody's putting forests down, it's going to max out really quickly, I mean. And it's you're going to be less incentivized to drop forests because a huge part of dropping forests is that you are helping out to get the endgame trigger, but mostly giving yourself income and points as you do it. And as soon as you are dropping them and not getting them, well, you're losing something because usually you're getting two points for forest, really, if you're bumping the oxygen because you're getting one point for raising the oxygen and one point at the end of the game for the forest. So as soon as oxygen maxes out, you're getting half the victory points that you would normally be getting for it. So if everybody's going for it, it's not good. One of the other strategies is there are a lot of victory point cards that get better as you add cubes to them. So there's microbes and there's floaters in the expansions and there's cows and there's fighter ships and all these different things that are all uh, you know, uh, basically just cubes you put on them and you know that that's what they mean. That's what they represent. And they're usually things like once per round, add a cube to this at the end of the game, one point for every two cubes on the card. Sometimes you need the source of the cubes. So right. there are linked cards, and cards are linked to each other, uh, which is an issue because mm -hmm. it's a unique card game. You may not ever see the exactly. card that is uh, twinned or coupled to yours. Right. Um, and a lot of cards are also linked to colonies. Exactly. Which so, we will discuss. Yeah, so, so th and that's what I'm saying about you know not really being able to decide your strategy or what what where your main points are going to come from till the very end and there is a shotgun strategy to this as well you could be you could win the game with a little bit of everything a little points here a little points there a little points here um but the two biggest ways are through cities and forests and through resources on cards now there's also something called awards and milestones which uh 
are a decent source of points and something that cannot be ignored. I think you need to be competitive at least in one award and potentially one milestone as well. Awards are uh, end game victory conditions and milestones are first person to do X, first person to have 16 cards in their hands, first person to uh, have, I think, eight forests down, things like that. And when you when you have achieved that, you don't just automatically get it. You actually have to take one of your actions and pay a certain amount of money and claim it. Uh, so there is a fun jockeying for position to see and a race to see who gets these things first. Because only three of them can be claimed. Only three can be claimed. And uh, of, the, of the awards, only three... So those are all... The awards are endgame victory conditions. There are usually five or six if you're using expansion. Uh, and only three of them are going to be active at the end of the game. Uh, so if you have an end game condition that is necessary on getting that five points, so, so basically when you put a cube on one of these things and state, this will be an end game victory condition, the first person gets five points, the second person gets two points. Um, so if you need that five points, which is five points again, in a game of 50, 60 points, that could be 10% of your whole score. If you need that, you need to make sure that that gets scored because if three others get chosen before that, you could be in trouble. Um, so those are sort of the, the levers of the game. Now let's talk about the various expansions. The first expansion of the game came with no cards, uh, which everyone's I, I at least was a little disappointed with because that is the main crux of the game. I wanted more cards. But instead, we got a double-sided map. Now, uh, what was cool thematically, we got the back side of Mars, and then one of them is a slightly different uh, side of Mars as well. So it's just a different layout. Uh, there are different awards and milestones, which I think is the most important thing about the boards. They totally change up the potential endgame scores and the milestones that everybody's racing for. And um, they just give you a new way to play the game, a new a new strategies that can work. When you place things on the board, sometimes you get little bonuses. It changes up those bonuses. It changes. It's sort of an age of Steam sense. It's going to change up the board a little bit. Now, uh, it is not a necessary expansion. I think you'd be fine playing without it. If you play this game a lot, you're definitely going to want to have this because it, it gives you three times so it gives you two new boards out of so now you have three boards to choose from when you play and each one does really just change it up in terms of the awards and milestones is the biggest thing to me um so that was the first expansion the expansion that came after that was hold on i have to actually look at these by year published uh the one that came after that was prelude i would not play terraform mars without prelude and i think most people who play the game would agree this is a buy it with the base game expansion. I wouldn't even play it your first. I would just throw it in your first time. Here's what it does. Uh, it gives you a lot more uh, corporations to choose from, which is always a good thing. And it gives you prelude cards. So prelude cards are new as, uh, asymmetrical starting positions. So the prelude cards will give you nice little bonuses. Uh, now, the main thing they do is that there's a version of the game where everybody starts at one. So everybody has these different productions, right? Everybody's building the same things. You have your money production, you've got steel, you've got titanium, plants, energy, and heat. Those are the six sort of uh, uh, resources in the game that you can produce. And usually in the game, people start everything at one. So you're making a little bit. Um, in this version, everybody starts at zero. And the cards that they draft at the beginning of the game, not draft, choose, you're given four, you're going to pick two, along with your corporation, you're given two, you pick one, and your ten cards, you have a lot of information in the beginning, that beginning can take a little while, everybody figures it out, uh, but it, they're fun decisions. Uh, from those four prelude cards, you're picking two, and that will decide what you produce and what you don't. Now, 
not only does this make the game so much easier on new players, because if everybody starts with the level playing field and the only thing that matters is your cards, you have a lot of choices to make and a lot of different routes to go. This, though, will really guide your opening decisions. This will guide, okay, this is what I'm good at. I produce energy. Let's find some cards that need energy production. Let's find this. It sort of puts you into a place where you have a smaller decision space, but a more interesting one where you actually feel like you're good at something. I felt in the, ver- the first version of the game, uh, you, you, it, it, there's a much slower build. It's going to take a lot longer for people's engines to start cranking. And those first few rounds aren't necessarily worth that, uh, those decision spaces is not that exciting to be watching everybody's engines just slowly creak together. This, this sort of everybody has the beginnings of an engine and everybody feels like they're doing something. They're starting something. Um, so to me, this is a must have expansion. It's a super cheap expansion. I think it's under $20. It's just a handful of cards. Uh, but prelude to me is, was the first like game changer. Never play without it. The, uh, let's see the next one after that was, Venus next. Uh, and Venus next is actually, did Venus next come out before? Oh man. Colonies. No, I know it came out before colonies. It came out before, sorry. Venus next came out before prelude. All right, let's talk about Venus next. This actually came out at Essen the year that Tom and Trey and I were there. And Venus next does two things. Now, this is a slightly controversial, uh, expansion in the fact that a lot of people, didn't love it when it first came out. I think it has actually improved with the, the 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 two expansions afterwards, which is Prelude, which I just talked about, and Colonies, which we're about to talk about. Venus adds Venus. It adds a little sideboard planet called Venus with a new uh, track that that as you go up it will up your VP and your your money income. Um, but but it is not a new end game condition. It uh, it doesn't matter how far you get up the track. Everybody doesn't need to work together to get it there. Uh, and often Venus Next will just sit there and no one will even do anything with it the whole game. Now, I think when people first bought the expansion, they they felt like this would be, oh, cool, a brand new, like super important part of the game. And they noticed quickly that in most games, nobody really touches it. So I think a lot of people had the feeling of, well, what's the point of this expansion? Why do I care about this? Um, but I have played games where it does become a big thing and it becomes important because it's actually a way of getting victory points and increasing your income without speeding up the game. So I think it's potentially a necessary expansion to reward players who are not incentivized to speed up the game. People who have a slower engine need more time, but don't want to fall behind in the victory point race. So it gives you a place to do that. Now, Outside of that, it also gives you a buttload of new cards, which are great and fun and add a new uh, uh, resource called floaters. It also just, it sort of, uh, I can't necessarily speak to this because I, 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 while I have a good amount of experience with the game, I don't have hundreds of games in it. I probably have 30. Uh, but I've heard people say that it balances other strategies well by uh, injecting a, a, a good amount of new cards in there that help sort of overall balance the, 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 the strategies you can have for winning. But you put your finger on the problem. Uh, because Venus, uh, the Venus strategy is there later in the game when you realize you're falling falling behind and need uh, a supplemental strategy. Mm-hmm. But by that time, you've seen so many of these floater cards, and because you weren't planning to use the Venus strategy, you let them go. So when you say, oh my God, I should go to Venus, 
you may not see the cards that actually will benefit you. Right. Well, unless you have started with a corporation that rewards Venus or some prelude cards that reward Venus as well. Um, or you're starting, I mean, your starting hand is really important. If your starting hand has three good Venus cards, I think you're, you're incentivized to go. Yes, of course. If you choose no Venus cards and then in the draft you see one, it's a little scary to go, well, do I want to dip my toe in the Venus stuff? But usually the Venus ones give you things that... Uh, you want already and aren't necessarily put you in a Venus only path because there's a lot of city cars that they give you that give you cool powers that the sort of are new cities that go around Venus. It's a little bit of a paradox. It's a supplemental strategy that you kind of have to choose to pursue from the beginning. Totally. Um, I don't think anybody needs Venus. I like it. I like having it there. I think it is. And it's something I'm going to talk about with a lot of these expansions. I think, uh, more stuff does not hurt this game and because I think they found good ways of not making the game slow down. So Agreed. one of the cool things they did in Venus, which I would not play without, which is I, th- I think a rule that you should add maybe even if you don't have Venus, uh, which is at the end of every round, whoever was first player that turn automatically raises one of the three endgame conditions. So either places an ocean, raises the oxygen, or raises the temperature. Now this guarantees the game will end in a certain amount of rounds. Uh, it also keeps things moving. It keeps. Uh, it, it means no matter if, if anybody's trying to slow it down, they now can't. Which I think Venus counterbalances that because now you can bump other. You can't bump the, one of those three things. Uh, you can't bump Venus instead of one of those three things. But on your turn, you can see that the game is ending pretty rapidly. But you want to get some victory points. Venus is a good way to do that without you know exponentially increasing the end game conditions. And by the way, speeding up the game uh, is not just to make the game go faster. Uh, Whenever we play with Venus, uh, we actually wind up with a full map uh, covered with cities and forests and oceans uh, by necessity. So it's not like you don't feel like the mechanism of the game or the story of the game is being ended too soon. There really isn't that much left to do, even if you do speed it up, which is why speeding it up is... a Good idea. And Venus is the cheapest way to raise your... So the thing we keep talking about where you get a victory point and your income is called TM, which I think is called the Terraf... I don't know. I forget what TM stands for. No, it's TR. Terraforming Mars rating, your TR. So the cheapest way in the game to raise your TR is with the Venus expansion. For 15... They call it mega bucks, I think. I'm just going to call it dollars. For $15, you can raise Venus once, which which bumps your TR. TR is your endgame victory points. It is also your, your yearly income. I think Trey or Tom will know exactly the average cost of a single victory point. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion on that on, on Board Game Geek, and I think the overall consensus it is about four and a half dollars per victory point. So fifteen is a lot, potentially. Uh, but it's a victory point and a uh, income. So the earlier you do it the more money you're going to be getting back off that investment. The later you do it, the worse, obviously. But the earlier you do it, the more money it will be making you every round. It could potentially pay itself back. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, Let's talk about the expansion we're talking about today. This is the fourth expansion, fourth major expansion. There's a lot of like little tiny card packs you can buy. Not necessarily packs, but one or two sort of uh, promotional cards that BGG store has a bunch and things like that. Um, uh, The next one is called Colonies. That's what we're reviewing today. Colonies came out in 2018, I believe, last year. And it adds 
another new component to the game, another new sort of thing you can do with your standard actions. Uh, and it comes with these little triangle pieces, which are charmingly not aesthetically pleasing at all, like anything else in the game for the most part. <laughs> they, they look very 3D printed, like somebody sort of made them at home and put them in your box. Uh, they fit when I you think they were molded. I don't think they, no, were, 3D they were not 3D printed. printed. They were molded. But they're, they're representational of some sort of a ship. It looks more like a, a cursor on your computer that you use to click on things. Uh, you put your cube in it to show that it's your ship, and then everybody's ships goes to uh, the colony hub. Now, there are two new actions you can do in the game. The first one is you can raise the uh, the colony level. So at the beginning of the game, I believe it is three colonies plus two for every player in the game, something like that, maybe. I don't know. We had six in a four-player game, so it's got to be two plus two. I don't know. So it, it, four maybe, plus N two? plus two? I don't know, something like something, that. Right, yeah. uh, but anyway, we had six in our game of four. They come out randomly. I think there's nine in the box, um, maybe ten. And from there, each one starts at a certain level, and uh, there's you put you put these sort of white cubes on them, not representing any player, but just the overall white. Cubes also, on not aesthetically pleasing nope. white cubes, and they are, will automatically rise every round. Uh, and when you send your ship there, you get that number of the level in whatever resource that colony makes. So, they're all the basic ones in the game are covered: plants and heat and money and things like that. And it is a way of uh, sending your ship there and getting a huge instant boost of something like, you know what I need? I need 10 heat this round. There's no way to get 10 heat in the game. Usually there's a, a, a large number of any resource quickly. This game has always been about slowly building up your engine and over time, making a certain amount of something. The colonies have a nice new thing of like, well, if nobody's gone there for four rounds, it's gotten up to 10. I can drop on there and get a huge resource boost and play a card that nobody could expect me to have played before and, and could now make a unviable strategy viable. I think it, it leaves more strategies on the table. Now. That's right, because you need resources, resources like titanium, resources like steel, resources like plants and yeah. animals. Um, and in the game, it's a unique card game. Almost all these resources you can get uh, if you get a card that will allow you to right. mine those resources yeah. and you can go through an entire game without seeing mm -hmm. that card or one of those cards. Mm -hmm. uh, but those resources are generally useful for a lot of things. So uh, the colonies are a way to make those generally useful resources uh, accessible to anyone willing to spend the money to equip right. a ship. Um, and so, and to send your ship to a colony, you can either spend, I believe it's $9 or three energy or three titanium, I believe. And titanium is usually worth $3. That's the same as cash. So yes. three titanium is worth $9. But of course, titanium is a very precious resource. Well, especially if you have cards that need it. Yes. Uh, so you can send your ships there uh, and you don't have to use money to do it. So if you make a lot of energy, now energy as a resource has a value. Usually energy as a resource did nothing. There's very few cards that rewarded it. Energy as a production resource was valuable because you could spend energy production. If you produce three energy uh, per round, a lot of your a lot of really powerful cards in the game would ask you to reduce your energy production in order to play this card. Um, and energy itself, though, usually would just become heat. At the end of the round, energy turns into heat very thematically, and you slide your energy over to heat. But energy as an actual resource never really had a hugely important role in the game. 
It does now, though. It is actually a very and probably the most viable strategy for colonies is for sending your ships places is spending those three energy to move your ship. Now, you can only move your ship once per round. You have what's uh, what I would call sort of you have one worker. And this definitely adds a worker placement element to the game. When you send your ship somewhere, nobody else can go there that round. So there is a jockeying for position. There's first one there. Uh, turn order really matters in terms of that. Um, gives you something to do with that energy. Lets you move your worker there. And uh, on top of that, though, it's not just about sending your ship, which I believe costs, like I said, $9 or three of those other two resources. But for $17, you can colonize the planet. You can take one of your colored cubes and put it on the track. When you put it there, it moves the track up farther. So whoever goes there is going to get more stuff quicker. Uh, But when you place it, you get a little bonus. It's usually going to be a production bonus. I'm going to place my cube. And I'm going to move up one on whatever that colony produces. So heat and heat production, money production, whatever it is. But now for the rest of the game, and you can never be removed from this colony, for the rest of the game, anytime a ship goes there, you get a little bonus. So let, and it's usually the same thing that the colony produces. So, for example, I think on the uh, energy one, it's, you know, somebody goes there, they get whatever it is. So if the level is nine, they'd get nine energy. And if your cube is there, you get three. And if you have your cube there and send your ship there, you would get 12, which makes it very awesome for you to have your colony there and go there. It could be a huge boost of something. But if it's a very popular planet and everybody in this game needs this certain resource, you're going to get rewarded every round for doing nothing other than at the beginning having spent a, a not not unsizable amount of money of $17 to put your cube there. But if it is going to be something that you think people are going to be going there often in a 10-round game, that could pay off uh, hugely for you. My complaint about colonies yep. that I generally like uh, is, is that it's not quite as integrated into the cards as I would like it to be. Uh, you're invited to build lots of colonies if you can. Yeah. That, so that's... colonies did add a, 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 a not unsizable as well amount of cards to the game. But the cards, again, it's a unique card game. Right. Uh, and, and I felt that... Uh, I was getting cards that uh, allowed me to get victory points from my colonies. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of steps involved. Uh, I did not know those mechanisms in advance. Uh, And uh, the cards were not as intuitive in terms of how do I convert colonies Mm -hmm. into points. There are a few of those opportunities. There could be more, uh, and they could be better integrated. Now, do you feel that these new cards dilute the overall deck? By definition. I'm never going to complain. Well, not necessarily by definition if they're also adding in a, 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 you know, a, 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 a more balanced number of cards that we previously saw that were you know, like certain strategies. Unless you start drafting with more cards. Mm. Uh, there's not an easy way to deal with it. Balance always dilutes. In, in, in fact, that's part of the definition of balance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like a buffered solution, uh, you're adding more acid and you're adding yeah. more base uh, and you're diluting the effect. So it, it, there's a balance within the balance, I was, right? I was definitely looking as I played to see, would I get, would I see all of the main strategies in the game? And would I see them in a number that felt viable to actually achieving them. And I, I really felt like I, there was nothing I didn't see. I saw floaters. I saw all the things from Venus. I saw animals. I saw ships. I saw, I saw all the sort of main things. And I don't feel like I saw them in fewer numbers than I saw before. Uh, but there's also an order that you have to see them in, mm-hmm. right? Because some cards require 
a foundation. Well, that's provided. tactics, though, isn't it? I mean, like that's you know, if you have to sort of be building upon what you had before, but keeping yourself flexible. You have to know enough already to be able to see. Oh, here's a card that I can't play now. Right. That in involves a floater, but I know there are cards that will give me floaters that I can then put in this card, and I should be looking out for them later. Right. Uh, and and yes, uh, that is something that you are, after playing the game enough times, you're going to anticipate. Yeah. Uh, but it's a lot to ask. Yeah. I mean- and, and, and again, uh, if what you're mainly doing is adjusting the balance, uh, a very advanced player doesn't need as much balance as uh, an early mm-hmm. player. Sure. Uh, so you're kind of like, you know, you're giving and you're taking away at the same time. Yeah. You're adding to the balance, but you're taking away uh, the usability or the integration. You're diluting uh, and uh, uh, they don't all work together. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I think I'm at my limit for the amount of cards I want to add into this game. I, I, it, it's, it, I mean, it's a silly level of cards at this point. So I actually have my broken token organizer comes with a standing upright deck holder that holds. And it's beautiful it nice. and it is, laser cut and has, has a rocket. But it is full. I cannot hold now. If I want to add more cards to this thing, I'd have to unsleeve my cards. And 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 in fact, uh, this is a little bit of a component issue as well. To me, there is a printing difference in some of these different expansions, which makes uh, well. Okay, forget the printing difference. Although I have noticed there's a slightly different color variation on the backs of the cards, slight. But the main thing is, if, if you have played the base game a lot and you have not sleeved your cards, and you add in a new expansion, it's going to be very clear what cards have been played before, which cards are crisp and brand new and beautiful and have no dings on them at all. So you basically can see you know, how many cards somebody has in the newest expansion. You'll just see the wear on the back of the cards, which yeah, to me breaks the game a little bit. How many times a day do you wash your hands? And when you leave a room, <laughs> do you have to turn the lights on and off a certain number no, of it's times? it's not necessarily an OCD thing. As much. I think it's a playability issue. I think like if you have very worn, it's very clear what cards in the deck were from which expansions by how much play they have on them. I mean, it's just a lo- amount of time and wear on the cards. Um, anyway, that bothers me in games, which I guess could also be seen as an OCD thing. But I used to be the same way about my books, and then you gave me a Kindle as a gift and <laughs> that did. ruined me that yeah. completely ruined me <laughs> um so yeah uh look i think colonies is not necessary i don't think it is a must buy expansion i think it is an expansion that adds things that you could ignore and still win i don't think what i think was great and here's, here's what i think is great about all these expansions i don't think they are necessary paths of victory now i don't think sort of like uh great western, great western, great western trail, trail yeah. added a new thing and if you are not paying attention to that if you're not using the new mechanisms involved you are going to lose i don't think you have to focus on colonies i don't think you have to focus on venus next i actually i think that's fun i like the fact that you know what i can sort of play vanilla with these expansions involved and not going to have a hard time i don't think the, the deck is diluted enough to the point where you are now being forced to play different parts of the game are there, there are just more modules. Are there more Venus Next cards than Colony cards? I that think was, they're about the same amount. 
I think they were pretty close. They're both I don't think I saw the equally, same amount. Equally, okay. Yeah. Well, there but you maybe go. because I was interested in actively looking for colony cards. Yeah. And then Venus cards, so those floaters kept coming yeah. in instead. Maybe because I was playing with wily, experienced sure. players who kept sending them to me. Out, outside of the... Uh, the added rules explanation of these expansions. I don't think there is an added time element to them. I think the game, I think the game actually played a little faster with colonies because there were times when you would have these huge injections of cards, which had allowed you to do more, a huge injection of resources, resources which yeah. had allowed you to do more. I actually, I, I genuinely think colonies sped up the game because we had more resources coming in. We had more to work with. We could play more cards. We could boost the end game conditions faster. And Venus definitely speeds up the game. Venus definitely speeds up the game with with a rule that you could add without buying Venus. You could exactly. just say at the end of every round, whoever's first player, you're going to bump up one of the three end game parameters. Um, so I, I really like the idea that this game is becoming sort of a sandbox system. And I'm not worried about Turmoil, which is on Kickstarter right now. It's just well, just finished on Kickstarter yesterday. By the time you hear this, it'll have been done for about a week. Um, it adds a brand new module, sort of like Colony, sort of like Venus. And this one is uh, governing. Uh, you're going to be choosing the government that will take over on Mars and the policies that they will uh, employ on Mars. And Democker. It is sort of the democker element of being added to from Mars. Now, the only thing that I think would, could possibly be bad about this is if you have to use it in order to win now. As long as it is just there and something that can help your strategy or become a new strategy, which is balanced with the others, I have no problem how many modules they want to add. Now, the only problem I have is this is going to come with another chunk of cards, and I, I'm literally at the, I don't have room for it. And the stack becomes silly at some point. So I don't know. I don't know. It'd be nice if somebody. It'd be nice if in the box there was a way of culling your deck somehow. And like, I was just <laughs> thinking about that yeah. as we were talking. That an interesting expansion would actually allow you to remove certain mm -hmm. cards from the game yeah. and replace them. And I definitely felt that some of those cheaper cards that talk about like scientific institute that are there just to um, give you. Each card has a little tag on it, yeah. and, and some cards require you to have um, lots of a particular tag. Yeah, the tags are prerequisites usually for yes, other cards. And there are a few cards that are cheap that just add a tag and maybe a single benefit, one-time benefit. These now seem a little basic and not terribly um, mm. useful and not at the same level as the rest of the cards. You I think do, there's a little bit of a power creep issue. Yes. Uh, and I do like, uh, because I'm so uh, attracted to the narrative element of games, uh, to me, more than Venus, more than um, uh, the colonies, the government, yep. the, the turmoil is part of a necessary next step story. Story-wise, totally. Story-wise. Story totally. so, story so I think it belongs there more than the previous extensions. Not having played it, of course. Yeah. Maybe well, it sucks, but I don't think so. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to try it. Uh, but we have uh, at least another six to nine months to enjoy all of these other expansions before we throw in a new one. Um, another way to play Terraforming Mars, if you just want to try it before you buy it, uh, is on Steam. There is a digital version of Terraforming Mars. It has no expansions. You are playing the vanilla base game alone. 
Uh, you can play with friends online. Uh, I believe it's PC only, no Macs. This is not on Android or this is not on your iOS. This is only on PC, desktop computers or laptops. Um, the game is usually $30. It's on sale right now for $15. I can't tell you if that sale still exists by the time this goes live. Uh, it is a great way to play the game against the AI. This game plays solo on the table. I would prefer to play it on the computer outside of not having any expansions. Hopefully, they're going to add those expansions. It's worth checking out if you want to try the game. Uh, $30 is at least cheaper than the base game. I think it's usually about $50, $60. Uh, especially with all the expansions, it's going to cost you quite a bit. Although the expansions are about $20 each, I think. Um, but either way, I think it's worth checking out. Overall, I'm going to give Colonies a good review. I know Tom, uh, he played it uh, once, maybe twice. He did not feel it added enough to the game to add it in. I feel like he felt it diluted it. I don't I don't feel like any of these expansions dilute anything because they are not necessary paths to victory. Whether or not that is a, uh, a negative for you, you might feel like, well, why add something if it doesn't necessarily uh, change the flow of the game? Uh, I, I, that's fine. I understand that. You might feel like you're not getting your money's worth on it or it's not worth taking up the table space. It does. I like having those extras there. It gives me new thoughts. Like, you know, Colonies to me opens up new routes of, of tactics. Like, oh, I, I got a card this round. Oh, well, I'm, I'm first player and there's 10 uh, titanium I could get this round. And this card will, I, now I can play a card I would have never been able to play before. And that could open up a whole new strategy to me. Um, it just gives you more things to do. There's a level of player interaction that I think is added by it. We are now, turn order matters uh, in a big way. Um, and it used to only matter for awards or milestones or for placing cities. It now matters for colonies. As things move up, you start noticing what's valuable. It becomes a fight. A lot of first actions are going to be about snagging those colonies. Um, but not, you know, if people are start putting their, their colonies down there, so they're getting rewarded every time your ship goes there, that de-incentivizes you to go there because, well, now I'm giving, I'm giving every other player who went there something awesome. Um, there's just, I think, I think it adds a fun level of player interaction. So if you were looking for player interaction in Terraforming Mars, if you felt like it was, uh, you know, multiplayer solitaire, I think colonies could potentially solve that for you. Uh, and again, the game, the underlying game is wonderful. Yeah, I don't think Colonies uh, takes away anything from the game. Um, I, but I also cannot say that you should never play without it or that you need to buy it. Uh, I do think you need to buy Prelude. And I do think if you like modern board games, you need to buy Terraforming Mars if you don't own it. Or at least you need to find somebody who doesn't play it. Uh, I think it is a staple. I think it's a classic at the level of Agricola. I don't think it's going anywhere. That is our review of Terraforming Mars. We are now going to move on to our group member specific segment. And I'm very excited to take a break from talking fast and turn it over to Dimitri Portnoy. I'm going to talk about game shows. Not the 1970s game shows, not Family Feud, but uh, shows uh, and movies uh, that are influenced by game ethos. Uh, games are a form of storytelling. Uh, and a highly structured form of storytelling and a storytelling that involves certain economic principles. Um, not all of them are articulated, but they are foundational and we absorb them when we play games. We buy into them. Uh, and filmmakers, uh, writers, TV makers also play games and they also absorb the game ethos and they also buy into these unspoken underlying rules and then that influences the shows the books the movies that they make so you're saying that games video games board games games in general have worked their way into movies and books and media uh board games and rpgs 
very uh, uh, very much so uh, video games have a i believe a different influence and i'm not going to talk gotcha. about that i'm not a video game player and uh, i didn't see you that wasn't you on fortnite last night who uh, ganked me uh, you got me no <laughs> no 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 it 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 wasn't what what i'm going to do is i'm going to compare three antecedents and current versions mm-hmm. uh, uh, uh of uh uh intellectual properties and stories that are very related and show how the recent one has more gaming thoughts oh, and gaming ethos. And it. I'm going to compare Lord of the Rings uh, to, of course, Game of Thrones. I'm going to compare original Star Wars to the prequels and the sequels. And I'm going to compare the two versions of Battlestar Galactica and show how the later version has more game ethos in it. This and, is like my dream TED Talk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you so much. I, I hope it's going to be a little bit different from that. Um, uh, first of all, what right do I have to say that? Well, because George Martin, for example, talked about... The how writer he, of Game of Thrones, yeah. Yes, talked about how he played RPGs constantly when he moved to New Mexico with other writers mm-hmm. in the late 1980s. He's also a miniature tabletop gamer as well. He's, he's of course. shown a lot of pictures of his painted miniatures, etc. Of course. And uh, my favorite science fiction writer, Gene Wolfe, talked who about... passed away last week. Who passed away last week. Uh, wrote my favorite book, uh, The Book of the New Sun. And he talked about how the genesis of that book was in the mid-70s when he said he wanted to create a character that people could dress up as Hmm. at science fiction conventions. That's great. So LARPing, which developed together with uh, RPGs uh, uh, and has a lot of the same ethos and the same components. It's a way of combining tabletop role-playing with... with costumes and dressing up at conventions. That's right. Uh, had a major influence on writers because they went to conventions, mm-hmm. science fiction conventions. They talked to fans. And again, games are a type of storytelling and they scratch some of the same itch. Um, a lot of games are fantasy and science fiction based in, in terms of their concepts and their ideas, there is an intersection, there's a communication, uh, there's flow between. Oh, yeah. Okay, so basically, um, the two elements of game ethos that, that I see uh, being reflected are uh, transactionality and iteration. Uh, basically, they're foundational assumptions of games. Uh, Games are transactional. The assumption for most games um, is that they're based on interactions between fairly evenly matched players. Okay. Okay. Uh, The opposite of that is uh, a quest. So in Lord of the Rings, Frodo is an underdog. Frodo and his nemesis Sauron 
are not evenly matched. Right. One it, would be a, a professional gamer and the other would be a, a, a non-gamer. <laughs> exactly. And and can you even imagine them uh, like negotiating? Right. <laughs> I mean, wh- 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 where would they sit? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so, so um, uh, the other thing in, in Lord of the Rings, um, Boromir, mm-hmm. for example, is not really a player. When Boromir says, let's use the ring of power, we know that that's a bad idea. Right. We know it's not that a winning strategy. We know that, yes, that's right. So that also is not a game thing. Mm. It, it, it's a completely different It'd be really ethos. fun to break down the fellowship by their gamer type. <laughs> you could, yeah. but ultimately it won't matter. Gandalf's it, the game enthusiast, I believe. Sure. I think I'm Gandalf. <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, let's look at Game of Thrones. Yep. First of all, it's a Game of Thrones. It's mm. game. It has game uh, in the title. You either uh, win or you die. Yes, it, uh, of the first book. It also is very symmet- symmetrical, right? Be- be- because the players are much more evenly matched. Right. There's not a Sauron. There's there are a, asymmetric powers and, and starting positions, but uh, but yes, sure. But games also have that, right? Uh, but there's not like we're, there's no sense of combating a great evil. Uh, sometimes there is with the Ice King. Yeah, later on. Yes, the Night uh, King. Yeah. Also, you don't really know uh, whether the dragons are a good idea or a bad idea. If somebody, if a Boromir type mm-hmm. stands up and says let's use dragons to right. and somebody else says maybe we shouldn't use dragons because they're going to burn up everything you don't feel like one of them is automatically right or one of them is automatically wrong they're just different strategies right. or the and, dragons were engine building i mean they started out very small and they just had very little power and absolutely invested in them and by the end game they're pretty strong <laughs> absolutely the different sides in game of thrones can negotiate uh, There's an auction and, mechanism. <laughs> sure, sure. There's player elimination. <laughs> this player elimination. There's also something called uh, that I want to call iteration and like replayability. Yep. There are episodes. Uh, there are, uh, players can die and others can uh, take their place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a repetition that's not really there. In Lord of the Rings, because once you destroy the ring, right, the end. Well, that's sort of the end game goal of, of Danny uh, Daenerys. Uh, her whole thing is to break the wheel, right? Is the cycle that that keeps happening every time, and people keep sort of replaying the same game. That's right. And her goal is to break the game. She's Paul. But the fact that that's right. But the fact that uh, uh, I guess Tyrion would be Paul if I had to really. Why? Well, just because he's always trying to. Well, no. Well, no. Littlefinger would be Paul. He's trying to break the game. He's trying to. He's trying to uh, exploit the meta. I think Tyrion. <laughs> well, interesting. Uh, we can have a discussion yes, of yes, who sorry. we are. I'm not trying to. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, I'm getting sidetracked. But thank you so much. Uh, so um, that cyclability, mm. the fact that you can have a TV show. Uh, where you have like a reset um, and, and the same conflict restarts. Right. You regain the throne, you're going to lose it eventually. Somebody else will do that. Sure. That's, a, that's a game ethos. So transactionality, 
evenly, relatively evenly matched players with, with different strategies interacting. Doesn't happen in Lord of the Rings, usually battles. Or, sure. and, and you don't even see Sauron, right? You don't even see Sauron playing something. Sauron never says, this is what I want and this is my strategy. Sauron wants total domination right. and complete destruction, like the Ice King. Most of the people in uh, in uh, Game of Thrones want specific things, have specific strategies, and they're willing to interact with each other. Right. Okay. The same principles apply to the original Star Wars uh, and to the sequels. The original Star Wars, again, a guy goes on a quest to rescue the princess, to, to kill the bad guy, to free the galaxy. Right. It's a quest. It's an end point. Right. It's also, again, an underdog and, and, and uh, somebody else who's just wants complete domination. Uh, you can't picture them sitting down and negotiating. Right. At the beginning, Luke and Darth would uh, not have a fair fight. That, that's right. Uh, but look at how uh, the prequels start out, right? Yep. Again, it's transactional. It's about a trade dispute. Mm -hmm. The Jedi Knights are just another faction. faction. Yeah. I I exactly. They're not super-powered. They're not super-powered. It's much more level playing field, right? And, of course, by definition, it's a prequel, so it's an iteration. Uh, it it's, an, it's another run-through. Uh, it's much easier, uh, like... Um, Gwigon, what are their names, and Obi-Wan? Kigon Jin, I believe. Yeah, Kigon Jin and Obi-Wan. You can have a TV show of them going to different planets and resolving disputes. Sure. It, no, it could be a procedural, yeah. That, that, that's right, that's right. And Battlestar Galactica. The original Battlestar Galactica in the late 70s is a quest. Right. It's a quest to find Earth. Starbuck. That's right. And Cylons are, they don't talk. Mm -hmm. you, you know, they're robots. They're gleaming. They're the force of nature. Uh, the, the, the winds that are blowing Odysseus through the Mediterranean and yeah. the monsters. And um, again, you don't sit down to negotiate with Cylons. Mm -hmm. Look at the Ron Moore. Yeah. All it is is a negotiation yeah. with Cylons. Well, they, the big change they made were that you can't tell who the Cylons are. That's right. But you, so you can't help but interact with them. So again, right. you have tr transactional. The Cylons are much more human. In fact, spoiler alert, they are. Right. <laughs> you, you, you know, we find out that at the end of the show that human beings on Earth are a hybrid, a crossbreed uh, of. Uh, Battlestar humans yeah. and Cylons, uh, and 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 Cylons have a plan, right? Mm -hmm. So again, they're transactional. They have they're, a very strong strategy. They're players. In fact, the fact that the Cylons have a plan is uh, like one of the shows. What are those things called? Like the, the they're an advertisement for the show, right? right. They're, it, they're the promise, the premise of the show. They have a plan, right? Couldn't say that in the original. Yeah. So, why? Why did this happen other than the fact that Ron Moore, I'm sure, played a lot of games. Right. Uh, and George Martin played a lot of games. Well, there's also the timing. Uh, 
George Martin conceives uh, the song of Ice and Fire and starts writing the first book, Game of Thrones, in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Ron Moore uh, conceives the sequel uh, of, of Battlestar, to, to Battle, not the sequel, but the remake to Battlestar Galactica when he's working on that Star Trek show in the early 90s. Right. Well, he was on. He was on Deep Space Nine, and he was also on TNG, wasn't he? That's right. Uh, that's right. right. A- again, early nineties. Right. Uh, uh, George Lucas uh, starts seriously uh, considering uh, Phantom Menace in the early nineties. Something happened in nineteen ninety, I believe, that changed our thinking about the world, uh, and the Soviet Union fell. And the Soviet Union, the Cold War, was a titanic conflict with an ultimate evil. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't transactional. Who was the ultimate evil in that? <laughs> <laughs> um, Iran? <laughs> no, no. But uh, there was no sense that we're going to sit down and negotiate, even though we did all the time. Yeah. Uh, there was no sense that we could come to some kind of consensus with uh, the communists. Uh, we were on a quest against them, mm-hmm. right? And it was like total domination or, 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 or mutually assured destruction. Right. And after the fall, of the Soviet Union, we woke up in a different world. We woke up in a much more level playing field. Tom Friedman, the New York um, columnist and writer, calls it like the earth became flat. Mm. It became a symmetrical game space with all these different actors who transact transactionally interacted and could sit down and and negotiate or fight. It wasn't about uh, mutually assured destruction anymore. It was not about total domination. We won. Mm -hmm. Now we have not conflict, but competition. Right. And and so I felt the game ethos um, reflected that. and People are much more interested in a level playing field as opposed to your classic sort of Campbellian hero's quest. That's right. And the quest lost some of its meaning. Uh, and also, we, like we said, the end of history, mm-hmm. right? That, that's one of the slogans from 1990. Well, right. history, post-history. Post-history. History didn't really end. It's just this particular cycle ended, and now we're into a new cycle. We sure are. And... That's iteration, right? Right. So transactionality and inter- iteration; those principles are now reflected in Game of Thrones. They are reflected in Star Wars, uh, and they're ultimately reflected in in Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what do we gain? What do we gain as uh, writers of shows and writers of books? What do we gain as readers and, and viewers? Well, we, we gain um, replayability. You know, now we can have Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. you know, 70 hours of entertainment because you have iterations right. um, um, uh, as opposed to three big 
you know, of six, I guess, Lord of the Rings and, and Hobbit movies. Mm-hmm. Hob- the Hobbit is not about replayability, right? <laughs> In right. fact, three Hobbit movies were a little bit too much. But you can have seven, eight, nine, or five books of, uh, of Song of Ice and Fire. You can have 70 hours of uh, 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 Game of Thrones because of the iter- because of the game ethos, because of the underlying game ethos. It seems like one of the big things is the, is the difference between uh, a singular perspective and, and multiple perspectives. That's right, because you have, it's not one person, it's not, not one underdog from, from life to death, yeah. going on a quest. Right. It's about different uh, yeah. people interacting. I mean, Game of Thrones, literally, every chapter will th- jump thousands of miles and into a completely different human being uh, and tell you their perspective. You see through their eyes now. Sure. And Game of Thrones is actually about the quest fail. Right. Any Anytime somebody in Game of Thrones goes on a quest, they either die or, yeah. or, 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 or they fail. They, sure. they just don't. They don't succeed. Uh, the the most recent Star Wars, The Last Jedi, is about a quest fail, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people screamed foul. Yeah, you, you know. But guess what? You know, they watch Game of Thrones, and it's fine. Well, bec- I mean, I think I think they they would say that they uh, when when there's certain expectations for a story, it, it's jarring when when then it becomes something different. Uh, yes. Whereas Game of Thrones had always had that perspective. I love that. I love that when my I expectations for a story. I do too. Uh, but some yeah, people you know, are not as uh, as interested in in that. They want they they they're they're at their restaurant for a certain dish, and they don't want the the chef to switch it up on them. Sure. Here's another thing we gain. We gain empathy, right? Uh, in a quest story, we really only have empathy for one person. One side. There's good one and evil. side, and. and in Game of Thrones, we have empathy for multiple sides. Right. So we guess have what? Heroes. Guess what? You can really hurt us by killing one of the people we love. Suddenly, you can have actual consequences. the 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 questing underdog will never die. Yeah. But in Game of Thrones, anyone can die That's except right. in Winterfell. Luke, when- will, Luke will never <laughs> die in normal Star Wars. In the original Star Wars. That's right. So there's a, a freedom to explore and punish and surprise the audience because we are now going to accept loss and we may even switch our empathies to different right. characters. Yeah. For example, Jamie Lannister yeah. uh, in, in Game of Thrones. That is a, 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 a big plus. Yeah. We also gain the illusion of agency. This is a little bit of a complicated point to make. Um, and and uh, Trey, our, our, our wonderful game designer, actually uh, planted that idea in me because we were having a late night conversation and, and, and I made one of my assertions that all games are about making choices and making decisions. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, that's not true, Dimitri. Candyland is not. Right. In Candyland, you don't make any decisions at all. Right. You draw cards, you move, and that's it. You just see what would have happened regardless of who played it. <laughs> that's right. It's destiny. Yes, but then he immediately added, but any four-year-old playing Candyland would say, I won! Right. You know, I deserve to win because I played so amazingly, even though she or he had no say in the matter. Right. 
And why is that? Because there's something about the ethos of the game, the dynamic of the game, the way it models economics uh, and economic theory, which is all about choice making. Even though the game does not have any choices within it, it convinces you through agency, through modeling agency, through creating an illusion of agency right. that you actually did make choices. you draw the card and you move the piece. That's right. And that helps in Game of Thrones too. Because the ethos in the Game of Thrones, the level playing field, the transactionality of the characters helps the viewer accept the illusion of agency mm. in these characters and creates the impression, the verisimilitude, the suspension of disbelief that these are people who are making their own choices. Right. The so until the three-eyed raven lets you know that, that they had no choices at all. Well, again, uh, there's a George Martin, there's a Benioff, but uh, we read literature, we watch movies, we watch TV because we believe that these are people making choices right. and suffering consequences right. that they win or lose because of their own agency. That's what interests us. It's an illusion, right? but it's what interests us. And absorbing, accepting the gaming ethos by the makers and by the audience aids in naturally aids in, in, in creating and constructing that illusion. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in the original Star Wars, we're not rooting for Luke to win. We're rooting to see how Luke will win. We're, we're, we're rooting for the most exciting way that he's going to win. I mean, there's no, there's, no, there's no actual suspense of if he's going to defeat the villains. Which is why uh, Empire Strikes Back is such a great movie. Because at the right. end of Empire Strikes Back, when, spoiler alert, yeah. Darth says, I'm your father, he suddenly gains agency. Mm -hmm. He suddenly becomes a character. Uh, he suddenly loses the soreness and becomes another hobbit. Right. Uh, and for the first time, you actually don't know what's going to happen because it becomes transactional. Right. Luke has a choice of taking Darth's hand and Darth has a choice of pulling him up. Yeah. Right? And and actually makes that choice. And for the first time, he acts like he has volition. Uh, he acts like he has uh, agency. Yeah. So this is all good, but, you know, every silver lining has a cloud. So mm -hmm. what do we lose what do we lose when we become really, really, really excited uh, about the gaming ethos and expect every show, uh, every book to have a level playing field and transactionality, not to involve a quest? We give up on the quest. What do we lose? Well, we lose the gaming ethos cannot fit well or cannot tell a certain type of story. Mm -hmm. And one I already named and discussed constantly, and that's the quest. We 
the one person who's going to go out and challenge the world and change the world and then get back home and then defeat the ultimate evil. Um, you can't tell that story with through multiple parties tra- transacting with each other, interacting with each other. And also you can't tell that story through iterations. It, it by definition, a right. quest happens once. Right. Uh, there, there's a wonderful poem, I think by Tennyson, about Odysseus going, at the end of his life, going on his second quest, mm-hmm. right? The first one was coming back home to Ithaca from from Troy, right. and now he's talking to uh, all of his you know, people and saying, come with me on my ship. Um, he's not coming back from that quest in the poem. It, right. It's understood. Uh, and of course, uh, Tolkien has Frodo go on a second quest as well. Right. And Bilbo go on a second quest to Lothlorien. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing Lothlorien, yeah. Yeah, and that's death. Lothlorien. I mean, they're not coming. No one comes back from Lothlorien. So a quest is... Oh, some, you mean like where they go to die? Yes. Oh, no, that's called, uh, starts with a V. Uh, it'll come to me. Go ahead. Yes, it's like Valhalla, but not Lothlorien. Yeah. Something else. Forgive me. Uh, uh, I didn't do my research. So, so um, when they sail off, Valinor. Valinor. Thank you. When they sail off to Valinor, at the end, they're not coming back. Right. That no, is death. the. F- yeah. It's death. It's the final quest. Yeah. A quest is something that only happens once. There is another type of story, and my favorite type of story that also has uh, is contradictory to the game ethos, uh, and 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 that's um, called, and I forget what it's called, but it's a type of storytelling that uh, is responsible for a lot of surprise endings. Okay. Uh, and it's the dialectic. Right. Okay. And the best way to illustrate it is through uh, the sixth sense. Okay. Okay. Uh, the first thing you notice about the, the movie, si- the sixth sense, not the actual sixth sense. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I'm going to implant this idea in, in, in okay. everyone. Yes. Um, so the first thing you notice about the sixth sense when you look back on it is there aren't any big villains in it, there are mm-hmm. bad people right but there's no sword on there, there's no there, there's really no opposition right right the the there's not a conflict but a contradiction between two ideas here's this kid and either he talks to dead people or he really needs to speak to a therapist right and at the end this magnificent surprise ending you find out He's speaking to a therapist because the therapist is dead. Right. What happened to these two... He got both. He got both. What happened to these two mutually exclusive, contradictory, warring ideas is they smashed together into a third surprising, huge, and bigger idea that is the true ending, the revelation uh, 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 of the film. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and that's like the, the thesis and the antithesis, it's opposite fusing together into a synthesis, a new idea you didn't have before. Right. Now that is impossible. I'm going to say impossible to model through a game. 
because it's not about an economic transaction. It's not about the ideas talking together, sitting down and interacting and, and, and saying, let's look at the premises, let, let, let's look at the conclusions, let, let's see how we can both be right. right. Because both ideas go away, really. Both ideas are subsumed. Well, it's breaking into the this. game, right? It's breaking, exactly. It's breaking the game. Uh, and you can follow the game ethos only so long before you break it, right? But the other thing is that uh, in the sixth sense, it's really impossible to tell the story and give Bruce agency, mm-hmm. give Bruce Willis's character agency. Like Boromir w- about the ring, Bruce Willis is wrong. Right. Uh, and he cannot be right, right, or have the possibility of being right, and have the story that we really want to see, uh, and the story that the movie really wants to tell. Right. So for me, uh, and f- uh, there are probably philosophical arguments to do that. It, it's the dialectic cannot be modeled through economic an economic engine right well and 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 uh i'm not sure if tolkien invented this word but he definitely uh popularized it uh was uh, is the word eucatastrophe which he sure. which he loves in his stories and he felt was the the cornerstone the hallmark of of, of how his stories worked and the eucatastrophe is the opposite of a catastrophe it's the unexpected and surprise happy ending it's the happy ending that you felt came out of nowhere and destroyed with love and joy and well not destroyed but you know just it blanketed the world with love and joy out of nowhere so you know it's gandalf appearing at the end of two towers uh you know right when you think all hope is lost and and, and an unexpected victory that actually is impossible the eagles coming and saving everybody are you catastrophe you know it is it is there is no rule set up there is no forewarning this could happen there is no ah yes that is obvious it's in fact implausible and irrational and in fact just an unexpected uh blanketing of good news that has no no there is no game rules supporting it absolutely it's uh christ coming out of the tomb it, it, it's a very christian idea uh, you yeah it was god intervening right yes eu in in um uh greek means true and good mm-hmm. right so a you catastrophe is literally a true and good catastrophe right uh the dialectic is a little bit different different because dialectic is intricately related to the opposing ideas that the synthesis idea is going to replace and subsume sure but neither is model can be modeled successfully by uh, a game ethos because ultimately uh, it denies engine building right it says you can sit down in the last turn of a game move a piece and win it and 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 that's not good game design sure uh we saw you catastrophe uh, on game of thrones uh, in 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 the battle of yeah, let's uh, not spoil just in case it's it's a little too early to spoil, but sure, sure. Um, 
these game breaking rules yeah. that, that 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 actually have their own systems and their own structure. The quest has its own structure. The U catastrophe has its own structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, the dialect has its has its own non structure or superstructure. Right. Uh, and and of course, tragedy, love story, you know, also have elements that cannot be modeled by games. Um, and we give that up uh, if we start to expect every show, every movie, every book to have uh, to be based in a game ethos. Right. To seem fair and balanced in a sense. To seem symmetrical, right. to have a level playing field, to have multiple players. And to keep with, all options on the table. To keep all options on the table, to have all strategies be capable of winning. Right. All of all of that we we give up we give up the success we give up babe we we give up uh, mm. a lot mm-hmm. babe huh babe is uh, a dialectic in babe if you of, of course you remember babe. you thought you could just say babe and i would just move past it <laughs> yes because if you think about it in babe the two opposing ideas are are, are that uh, a babe is a really nice pig right <laughs> Uh, and he can also be uh, a shepherd because we know that mm-hmm. dogs cannot be nice to sheep. Okay, right. You, sure. you know, sheep won't. You, you know, right. sheep will not follow They're them. They're mortal right? enemies. Yeah. So, babe cannot possibly be a good uh, sheep dog right. because he can't possibly bite a sheep or bark at it or, right. or or force it to do something. And in the end, what happens? Babe is so nice that he by his existence, convinces dogs and sheep to become friends Mm -hmm. and collaborate so the sheep can tell the dogs a special password so Babe could learn it so he could shepherd and get a perfect score. In essence, it's George Miller's antithesis to the Mad Max, which is a classic hero's journey. Yes. Yes, it is. And and it has its own it has its own synthesis at the end where actually shepherding is now being done uh, by this Jesus pig who is nice <laughs> to everybody. Title. Much better title. Jesus, How did they go with babe? babe? What were they thinking? Babe, the Jesus pig. Uh, it, 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 it's a... It, it, trust me. That, well, if people that, have learned anything from is. this talk, I think it's that they need to watch Babe again. And they're right to because it is an incredible movie. Babe and so is, is an sequel. incredible babe movie. Babe 2, Pig in the City. Pig in, Pig in the C- if you remember Pig in the City, uh, Dad, uh, the fa- you know God, the father gets sick, and, mm-hmm. and 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 Babe has to go and 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 take his some followers. We're all from still the waiting city. for the fabled R-rated cut of Babe Two: Pig in the City, which apparently does exist and will never be seen. But it wouldn't surprise me. Doesn't doesn't Hoggett doesn't Mrs. Hoggett start uh, flying through the air mm-hmm. uh, and these uh, and and you probably see. I, I'm not going to say. <laughs> Uh, that was that was wonderful, Dimitri. That was fascinating and illuminating. And, and, I, and thank you for letting me talk about books yes. and movies. Well, I think you have uh, you've, you've you've staked your claim as our non gamer, but someone who clearly is very knowledgeable about games because you have been forced to play so many in your goal of uh, socializing with people that you care about. Again, yes, thank you for letting <laughs> me hang out with you. Games are a form of storytelling. And storytelling is yeah. a form of 
Get I don't me. think it's a coincidence that what six out of eight of us are screenwriters and storytellers by profession and spend I think almost seven. all of our free I think time. Seven, seven okay, out of eight. spend almost all I think of our Trey, free time. Sure, Trey is also that, and 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 Paul and uh, well, yeah. yeah. Well, Alfred makes music, so you know that's a form of storytelling. Of music course. is a form of st- storytelling, and uh, at some point, you guys should dance at the Daedalus concert because we will. it's amazing. Uh, our episode's running long, but we're still going to do Board Game Sommelier briefly today, uh, mainly because I am happy to announce that we have a jingle for this as well. I'm not going to say who made it. It's somebody in our group. It is not Daedalus. Have a listen, and maybe you can guess. Sometimes a player just got to know which game should stay, which game should go, which to play with mama, madame, abu. You've got to tell me, monsieur, just what to do. Want to make an impression, but I can't get far as my 50th player of Agricola. A million games. Show me the way to the master. The game sommelier. Oh, wow. I love Tom. Oh, you gave it away. I loved uh, How could you not know? I mean, seriously. <laughs> That's our wonderful board game sommelier jingle. Uh, we're going to start with Andrew. Andrew asked, can you talk about your game night logistics? We have a young child and more of our friends are having kids every year. So it's getting hard. How long do you game? Do you provide food, etc.? Thanks. Great question. Let's break it down for you real quick. We game from 8 p.m. till midnight, four hours. That is enough time to play pretty much any full game and maybe even a filler before. Uh, That gives you time to not be rushed. gives you time to sit down, to talk a little bit, to set up the board, to do a teach, and then also play a two- to three-hour game. Um, It gives you time to play a 30-minute to 45-minute filler and then play a game everybody knows. You cannot usually do a full teach of a complicated game and play filler and finish that game. Uh, So those are your two choices every night. Four hours to me is a perfect amount of time. Everybody who is available for a game night can be available for four hours. What you are not available for in that four hours is to eat. You cannot also have everybody show up and eat dinner because then you're not starting till nine, till 930 maybe. Everybody's got food on their hands. If you try to actually play the game while people are eating, that's a disaster. I recommend highly that people eat before. At many of our game nights, people will meet up together at a local restaurant and eat together. I that's always, why we start at 8. That's also so, why we start So there's at eight. time to have dinner beforehand. Uh, for the people who have children, like myself, I have time to go home, feed my child, help my wife put the child down. I do all those things so that then when the baby goes to sleep at around 7.30, I can run over for game night. Uh, that is how my timing works as a dad. That is how other people's timing works. I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to incorporate eating with their games. A, that's a, that's a, that's an OCD nightmare for the people who own the games. Don't get your dirty fingers on my stuff. Don't spill your drinks. Don't fling with your fork food on the board. Just, just do them separately. If you are going to feed the people who come to your game night first, you need to probably start at seven. And if you're going to go to midnight, you need to add an extra hour onto it, or unless you're going to be playing an hour or a 90 minute game, then you could. But um, I like to keep them separate. Uh, I often have snacks, but make sure that they are dry snacks, uh, uh, not, I, not wet snacks. I used to run a poker game, and I did provide food. But poker is very different from board games. Totally. Uh, poker, you can stop at any time and resume because you just have hands. Yeah, you just walk away and go eat something for 30 minutes come back. And you can even eat while you're playing poker because you're basically just holding a hand of cards yeah. and who cares? And if you get grease on your cards, you can throw oh out my your God, $4 two deck bucks. Of cards. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that is my logistics. 
That is how that works. We're going to do one more question. This is from Alan B. So I'm looking to try and find new and interesting games that are easier to learn, but also complicated enough to stay interesting and challenge my friends. Due to your old podcast, I picked up Scythe. And while it's fun, it might be a little too complicated. Like we still haven't remembered to follow all the various scoring rules. And uh, anytime my friends and I have played it, prior to Scythe, the only non-monopoly game I had played with friends was Bang. I realize this is probably very vague of a question, but any suggestions out there? Love, love, love the pod, even if I spend most of it Googling definitions about what you're talking about all the time. Well, I hope we helped you with definitions a little bit on the casual gamer primer with Jake a couple episodes ago. If not, go ahead and listen to that. We break down every uh, sort of inside baseball shop talk board game term that we talk about. Um, I'm going to say Scythe is a, uh, a medium to heavyweight, but it's medium with a little bit of a lean towards heavy worker placement game. I think a slight step down from that uh, would be Concordia. I think Concordia is my one of my solid middleweight go-to games. Another one would be Coimbra, which we reviewed on episode two with Trey. Those are two very solid uh, sort of uh, medium weight games. Now, I think the reason Scythe can get a little complicated is because people are playing asymmetrically in Scythe. You have different starting positions where you are on the board with the different things. You're also playing in your in your own little area, um, and there are a lot of little uh, little rules that can get tricky with that. Um, people also have different starting powers and things like that. With something like Coimbra or with uh, Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo would be Lorenzo can be a little complicated. I think I think it's a touch more complicated than Coimbra or um, or Concordia. Uh, but those two games, you teach everybody at the same time, and everybody knows exactly how to play. There aren't any different sort of starting positions necessarily. I mean, Coimbra a little bit, but for the most part, I think those are going to be simpler games to teach uh, that aren't necessarily, and also a little less conflicty, a little less about sort of war games, everybody's rushing at each other. And, you know, I I know Scythe has uh, sort of, people think it's a little more war gaming than it actually is, but there's still a level of um, two people fighting each other in the corner while everybody else wins the game and they sort of knock each other out of the running. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm going to toss out a game, Fresh Fish. Okay. A, a, a game that we actually play a lot at Tom's. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very interesting mechanism. It, it's a 45 minute to an hour game. Uh, and it's a game uh, where you're um, basically delivering four different kinds of goods. Friedman Free, so we talked about earlier, did Power Grid. Yeah. And it's a really cool kind of neat game uh, with an with a neat mechanism it's not worker placement uh it it, it, it's not engine building uh you're designing a city um and um it's very competitive uh and oh no we're talking i'm sorry that's a different fresh oh no it is friedman free somewhere from 1997 yeah yeah yeah. oh it's that old yeah well, there you go. We we I, I think at times we played the ten fifteen times with 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 Joy did it and Flash Power Grid, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it, again, it's short. Yeah. It's a short game, but yeah. it's still challenging. It's still there's still a lot to think about. Um, there's also just like straight up lighter games. I mean, if you want to try Quacks of Quedlinburg, which is, you know, one of the Spiel des Jahres this year and is definitely a light to medium game that you could explain really quickly. It might be a good idea just to get a few Euro-y lighter games like that. Of course, we always throw out Splendor or Azul. Uh, you know, Res Arcana, I think is also a really good medium way. Maybe the length, maybe it's like, try to try to wrap your head around a shorter game. So everybody can get multiple uh, repetitions of the game in order to sort of like really ingest those rules and get them down. Um, we're going to just end there with those two. Dimitri, this was a fantastic episode. We are not going to do other games we're playing this week because we're going a little long, but I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you coming to all of our game nights. I, you are a, uh, better 
person than I am because I don't think I would take part in something that isn't my passion as often as you do. Um, I think that is a testament to uh, how how what a good friend you are and what a giving person you are. I'm not sure totally if it's because you're European and I'm American, but I cannot necessarily disagree with that. We are going to the Tarkovsky Festival this this weekend. They're playing all seven, right? <laughs> yes, that's it. we're canceling game night, and uh, we're just going to listen to Hamilton and watch Tarkovsky films there as you per go. your great wishes. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please go to our Facebook group. Please sign up. Please join it. We have a lovely burgeoning little group close to 100 people now. It's a fun number. Everybody's chatting and talking. Join us. Uh, you can find the link to our Facebook group on our website, gamebrainpod.com. Go to contact us. You will find the direct link there and you can click the uh, join group and I will approve you or somebody will approve you. Alfred's Spotify Mix, an incredible mix made by Daedalus, the wonderful musician who is also a wonderful member of our board game group, is also available on our website. You'll find the link to the Spotify Mix. It is the perfect, unobtrusive yet interesting background music for your game night. Go to more about us on our website and in Daedalus's profile or Alfred's profile, you will find the link there. That's going to do it for us. Uh, next week is our final turn in this round. There are going to be a couple surprises here and we may even talk about a fun little contest to end our round with us. Thank you so much for joining us, Dimitri. Thank you for having me, Matt. Uh, you've been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson. Special thanks to Daedalus for incredible music. Show more on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach me by email at Matthew at GameBrainPod.com or through the website. Twitter is GameBrain underscore pod. Instagram, GameBrainPod. Thanks for listening. And go play some games with friends or go make some friends with games. <laughs>